Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, and Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit discount gold and silver trading at dgscoins.com. That's dgscoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Gentlemen, I'm Alfred Adisk, and this is Financial Survival, brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver at 1-800-375-4188. This is the Thursday evening edition on the 26th day of August, year of our Lord, 2015. James Corbett will be joining us um, after the first break, so he should be here in about 25 minutes, 20 minutes thereabouts. Um, in the meantime, we'll do the market report. I will make a few comments, and James will appear, and we will talk to James about uh, whatever comes up. But we will certainly talk about his. We'll get his opinion on what's happened in the market over the last several days. First off, where's the price of gold? Let me scroll up here. Gold lost fifteen bucks today. And closed at $1,126.40 per ounce. Silver fell almost 4%. That's $0.58 cents to $14.21 uh, closing price. It, it dropped below $14 for part of the day. It got down to $13.87 as its low, which means they are literally giving the silver away. That price at that silver reportedly costs about twenty bucks an ounce to pull out of the ground. All right, 
and they are selling the silver for six bucks less than the cost of production right now. I mean, you cannot expect if they're selling steak for six dollars a pound less than it costs them to raise the beef on the farm. It's a heck of a deal. It's a crazy deal. It's an insane deal on the part of the farmers to sell the beef for less money than it costs. But here we have somebody is selling silver for less money than it costs to produce. And not a little less. Six dollars less. That translates into something like 30% below the cost of production. This is, on the one hand, from the perspective of the, of the sellers, this is insane. From the perspective of buyers, this is an opportunity that is almost unmatched in American history. I, I'd be hard pressed. You would be hard pressed to find another time in American history, except perhaps in the depths of the Great Depression, where you could buy anything at such an outrageously low price. Platinum uh, up five bucks today to nine hundred and eighty-five dollars an ounce. Palladium down four bucks to four hundred, or excuse me, five hundred thirty-seven dollars per ounce. Dow Jones had its third best day in market history, up 619 points today to 16,285. NASDAQ up 191 points to 4,697. New York Stock Exchange up 287 points to 9,900, you could say 80. 9,980. U.S. dollar index rose over a point. I'm looking at the aftermarket figures right now. It's dropped down 0.16, but it was up about 1.25 during the day today and is currently at 95.17. Crude oil uh, fell 55 cents to $39.15. Per barrel, or excuse me, it rose 55 cents to $39.15 per barrel. Crude, uh, we'll see where this is going to go. A lot of people think, some people think, that it's going to go below 30 and fall into the $20 range. Some people are making predictions down to 10. I don't believe it. All right. But the way things are, they are so unstable, so volatile. I don't know what kind of numbers you can look at right now and absolutely say these numbers are irrational. This can't be. It couldn't happen. Not today, tomorrow, not 20 years from now. Can't happen. We're at a point in time when things can happen. And we shall see what does happen. It remains to be seen. I was listening to an interview today uh, from Greg Hunter, where he interviewed Jim Sinclair, who is, he's been associated with gold for, I, I have no idea, maybe 40, 50 years, he's been a leader in the gold markets and a guru that is respected and a legend and so on. Um, it was his opinion, and we'll talk more about this when, when uh, Jim Corbett arrives, but it was Jim Sinclair's opinion that what we've seen in the last several days is just the pre-crash, not the crash, this is just the pre-crash, and he thinks that the real crash will happen before the end of September, 
and this is August, and the next month is September, which means we have, you know, five weeks maybe, six, if Mr. Sinclair is correct, before we see the kind of problems that can't be solved, that leave you shaking your head and say, oh my gosh, what's happened here? No. Just because Jim Sinclair says, predicts that things are going to, the, the, the crash is going to happen, uh, before the end of September, doesn't make it so. I mean, Jim is a guru. He's knowledgeable. He's a brilliant man, great speaker, so on. But I don't believe he has access to God. I don't think he's a prophet. We, you know, if if he says something, you absolutely should pay attention and and factor it into your into your thinking. Uh, but it does. But it ain't necessarily so. Hmm? Um, still, something to think about. This is the pre-crash. The real crash will come, according to Mr. Sinclair, within five weeks. Well, we'll see. Uh, while we wait and wonder what's going to happen, here's uh, here's some comments. Let me see if I can find this. <clears throat> yeah. Here's an article from the Reuters. And the headline is, Wall Street opens higher on strong data. This was... This article was written late this morning, maybe 11 a.m., something like that. It, it was written before the day was closed. Day closed with the market up 619 points. But Reuters was wrote, Wall Street opened sharply higher on Wednesday after data showed U.S. orders for durable goods rose more than expected in July. Now, what they're talking about sharply higher Wall Street opened sharply higher. Well, that's an interesting phrase, but what does it mean? All right. At that point, the Dow Jones rose 393 points. Um, Standard & Poor's was up 41 points. That was 2.2%. Dow was up 2.5%. Uh, NASDAQ uh, was up 132 points to almost 3%. Um Wednesday marked the third biggest day in Wall Street history. By the time the markets closed, the Dow was up 619 points. Reuters attributed the early gain, right, the early almost 400 points, they attributed that early gain to data that showed the U.S. orders for durable goods rose more than expected in July. And to that, I say, bunk. In fact, um, given that I worked in construction back as a young man, I am fairly adept at using words more forceful than bunk. Right? But you get the idea. I am contemptuous of Reuters' explanation. Why? Because the Dow Jones Industrial Average rose almost 400 points in the first five minutes after the market opened. That is so improbable that it's almost certainly not because durable goods ordered orders rose more than expected in July. That's not enough. In the face of we've had three days when the market had fallen dramatically. And on the fourth day, we're going to come in here and say, oh, it went up, went up 400 points because U.S. orders for durable goods rose more than expected. 
How much more? A couple of tenths of a percent, and that's enough to motivate a 400-point rise in, 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 in a matter of five minutes, in the, in the first five minutes? I have a graph of the opening. You can't see it, of course, but I have a graph of, the, uh, of today's Dow Jones average. And you can see that in the first five minutes, the price exploded upwards in a vertical line, right? Um, it, it's near vertical. It's maybe a half a percent, or excuse me, a half a degree, two degrees, I don't know, somewhere in there off of being absolutely vertical. But in five minutes, it went from, it went from the opening, which was 15,666, to uh, it was up 400 points, which brought it up over 16,000 in four minutes. It doesn't make sense. The market enjoyed a 400-point nearly instantaneous rise because the government and or the plunge protection team caused that artificial rise, just like they did on Tuesday. Tuesday morning, we had a similar rise. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but we had another vertical line on the chart, on the daily chart. And the numbers rose dramatically right after they opened the doors. Okay, we're going to start, and bang. As soon as they opened the doors, prices rose dramatically. By the end of Tuesday, the prices had fallen below where they had opened, but they still had that vertical line right at the beginning. I don't think this is a coincidence. I don't think this is evidence of the free market. I, I can't prove it, but I'm convinced this is evidence of market manipulation. I don't like the markets. Right? I, don't, I don't like them. I don't like them because there is a fundamental stupidity there, in my opinion. People can keep betting on paper. They bet on paper debt instruments, which I think is stupid. They invest in paper debt instruments. They run, in my opinion, greater risk than they understand. I don't like the paper markets because they are. I'm jealous of them. They enjoy things like the plunge protection team, which holds those markets up even when they would go down, otherwise go down. They're like the fair-haired, you know, the fair-haired sun. And it leaves those of us in the gold and silver uh, camp. We are the uh, red-headed stepchildren that uh, daddy doesn't much like. And so we get kind of, I do anyway, I get jealous of the fair-haired stock markets and bond markets. Even so, I'm not wishing that the markets would go down and crash. I mean, part of me is, that's, there's no doubt that part of me is, but reasonably I understand that if we have a real market crash, everyone, even me, will be placed in jeopardy. Some of us may be hurt to some degree. All right? It's not going to be fun. I don't care how well prepared you are, very At the very top, people can take advantage of an economic depression. But the vast majority of people are going to be annoyed, inconvenienced, or even hurt. And that's what we're talking about if everything crashes. So I'm not really looking forward to a market crash. At least I have mixed feelings about that. But I am wishing that the central planners in Washington, D.C. would stop lying. I'm wishing that I could live in a world where telling the truth was so respected and commonplace that it was deemed unremarkable. 
rather than astonishing. Be right now, it's, oh, my God, somebody's telling the truth. I mean, what is the fascination for, for Donald Trump? Well, then, oh, my God, somebody's running for president who's trying to tell the truth. That's what's, that's what's attracting crowds. You couldn't get bigger crowds if you had a two-headed lady up there. All right? This is astonishing. We've got a politician who's trying to tell the truth. I don't want it astonishing. I want it commonplace. I want it every day. I want everybody we elect to government. Now, I know it's wishful thinking, but still, I would like the lies diminished. I'm wishing that the government gangsters in Washington would stop lying to me. And if that means the artificially elevated markets must crash, to hell with them. Let them crash, because that's the price of restoring some semblance of honest government. I understand that it's important that people have confidence in our markets and our monetary systems, and I understand, I don't appreciate it, but I understand that that confidence is boosted, can be, and has been boosted by lies. And it's like you don't want to tell little kids that Santa Claus isn't coming because he doesn't exist. So, oh, yeah, Santa Claus will be here. We tell them those lies. But I'm not a little kid. All right? Not, uh, I've, lost my, I've, I've lost my status as a child. It only happened in the recent months, but still it's, been, it's finally left, and I am now an adult man, and I would like to have somebody tell me the truth. And again, I know it's important. People have confidence in our markets. People have confidence in our monetary system. But I also understand that it's even more important that people have confidence in the honesty and integrity of their government. Right now, public confidence in the markets may be rising with the Dow. But public confidence in government is falling. We can endure loss of confidence in the markets all right, well, it'll be painful. We'll lose something out of that. But, you know, if the markets go down and they go down for an honest reason and the government says, oh, my gosh, we, we made mistakes, and the, uh, something happened, there was an earthquake, there was a hurricane, there was something, and we can deal with it. But when the government is lying to us and they're lying to us and lying to us, the persistent lying divides us from the government. We're no longer part of the game. We're no longer part of the winners on this thing. We are presumed to be, I don't know, just subjects, incompetence, property, fools. We're not part of that. You know, we were supposed to have government of the people, by the people, and for the people, according to Gettysburg Address. This government is not for the people, and the lies are evidence of that. Oh, we're lying to help you. We're lying to maintain the markets. Screw the markets. Tell us the truth. All right? And it's not just a matter of curiosity. It's the sort of thing where you have to know the truth. Somebody's got to give us a shot at it. We have to know what the truth is. I will ride on the lifeboat. All right? If the Titanic is going down, that's too bad. Let's get in the lifeboat and go. We can make this together, but we are not going to make it if the captain keeps lying to us and telling us, oh, no, everything's fine. Pay no attention to that water that's flowing through the bottom of the ship. We're just using that to wash the halls and the cabins and the companionways and the engine room. It's just, we're just cleaning things up. It's just the way we do things on this, on this ship. 
bunk, bunk, bunk. They are lying to us, and they're doing it to our detriment and for their advantage. It needs to be stopped. I'm Alfred Adisk, and this is Financial Survival. We'll be back in about two and a half minutes with James Corbett. Please stay tuned. make the aspirin mistake. Aspirin was discovered by mistake during World War II and suppresses your immune system and prevents blood clotting. Don't expose your body to risk when you can use a natural inflammation and pain reliever called Extra Strength Pain Relief by Apothecary Herbs. Discover the power this formula has with salicin to enter the system in 60 seconds to work hard and relieve pain for 12 hours. Whether it's arthritis, sports injury, or flu, you can relieve aches, pain, and swelling with our Extra Strength Pain Relief Formula. Call Apothecary Herbs now, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. Does the cost and risk of conventional health care concern you? Wouldn't you prefer inexpensive solutions to health problems rather than disease management? If so, tune into Herb Talk Live with herbalist Wendy Wilson every Tuesday and Thursday evening, 7 p.m. on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, where your health care options just became endless. Folks, I'm Alfred Addis. This is the Financial Survival Program. I'm here with James Corbett from the Corbett Report, C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com. Uh, James is working in Japan, been there for 11 years now, and he gives us 
an interesting insight every week into his perspective on what's happening in politics, society, history, economics, and so on. Hello, James. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing? Just fine. Can't complain good. too much. I don't, you know, everyone understands what good does it do you. Uh, sometimes it all makes you kind of angry and frustrated, but what's the point to complaining? Might just as well sit there and silently suffer rather than admit your complaints. For example, I have some complaints about the markets, but I'm not going to get into that. I'm just going to silently suffer over what's been happening in the markets. And we're going to talk about the markets, at least for the first of these two segments. And uh, when we get into the third segment, maybe we'll still be on the markets. Maybe we'll go to other subjects. But I listened to an interview uh, by Greg Hunter at usawatchdog.com. He interviewed Jim Sinclair earlier today. And there are a number of comments that Sinclair makes, and I'm going to bring them up and see if you agree, disagree, get your comments, see you get to comment on Mr. Sinclair's comments. Mr. Sinclair contended at one point, he said, this is a pre-crash, and we are not making it through September without the real thing. In other words, he sees the last several days of market decline. It says, this isn't the crash. He says, this is only the pre-crash, as if we were having tremors in the ground the signal there's going to be an earthquake, but this isn't it. Do you agree with that? Do you think there's going to be a crash before the end of September? I Well, I 1,000% agree that this is a pre-crash. Um, I would only add the caveat that I don't know if the, uh, if the real crash is going to begin in September or not, but it is coming, and it is coming soon. And I think we see that from all sorts of different uh, perspectives. But one of the... I think one of the ones that we should be looking at is the volatility index, which uh, measures the volatility in the markets. And there's a uh, there's a little formula that's used for that. But the, the CBOE vol- volatility index hit an all time uh, not hit an all time high, but skyrocketed the most it has ever gone up in one week last week, and that was right before the market started plunging. And of course, we saw that huge drop uh, on the opening bell on Monday morning, a thousand point drop, and then uh, a recovery uh, throughout the day so that it only was down a few hundred points. But then and now we've seen markets surging with, uh, I think, the third largest uh, one day gain on the Dow uh, just happening yesterday. So it is absolutely insane, the types of ups and downs that are happening right now. And that is a pretty big warning sign for anyone who wasn't already aware that there is some huge volatile tectonic shifts uh, taking place in the markets right now. And I really do uh, think that the there's been a misdirect with regards to this latest crash. It's been all foisted foisted on China. It was the Chinese markets tumbling, and uh, oh, then the, the the People's Bank of China didn't cut rates in time, so it caused the, all this turmoil over the weekend and led to Black Monday. I don't think that narrative holds up. I think that you can chart this to uh, the release of the Federal Open Market Committee meeting minutes on Wednesday. That's when the markets started tumbling, and we saw 800 point drop Thursday Friday. And then the Chinese market started to feed into this. So I think uh, people have got this wrong. Basically, markets are tumbling because the Fed is going to rate, uh, hike rates. And the markets are surging right now because people think that, that this huge 
Black Monday event means that the Fed won't hike rates. But if they go ahead and hike rates, as they still continue to be signaling that they're going to do, if they do it, uh, the the market is going to crash even harder than it did on Black Monday. And this time, I think it's going to stay down. So, yes, I certainly do see uh, this as just a pre-crash. The only question for me is the question of timing. Yep, that's the one that's always there. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? Yeah, we get that, but when? You know, the question is always, we can figure out We can figure out what's happening. I mean, you can look at this. It's like calculating a trajectory. There's a certain amount of mathematics to it. There's wind and there's other effects that can change when the you know the bullet the the projectile is going to land exactly but the question is when 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 and there's the problem that no one can seem to nail down just yet um he went on to say sinclair went on to say the u.s plunge protection team is losing control of the markets and i believe the reason he's saying that is because on tuesday tuesday started off with another dramatic uh Increase as soon as the markets opened up. I don't recall the number, but four or five hundred points up just as fast as they opened the doors, the markets went just straight up. And today we have the same thing. Tuesday still wound up with a 200 point loss on the Dow, but they, they opened with something like, I don't remember, but 400 points up. Well, we got another 400 point up vertical line today on the charts. And I see that as evidence both days as plunge protection teamwork. On Tuesday, the plunge protection team wasn't able to overcome the force of the market, and the market still closed 200 points down. They gave it a 400-point boost, and it still closed 200 points down. Today, they gave it a 400-point boost, and it closed 600 points up. Now, if do you, first off, do you agree that these early openings are evidence of the plunge protection team? And if so... Are they evidence we got one day, if the plunge protection team failed, the second day they won big time? Are they still in control here? I think so, more or less. And I think the fact that the markets have gone up is is the sign. And uh, I I mean, there's a couple of things to look at when you're looking for evidence of the plunge protection team. One would be one of those kind of very straight lines as opposed to the usual spiky material. You get this straight line going in the market and it just it's a very even uh, distribution. So that's uh, one sign. And obviously, if that happens during low trading and happens Uh, low trading volume, and it happens on on the basis of no particular new news. That's also a pretty good sign that, yeah, the plunge protection team is at work. Um, But I think that what they're attempting to do is not necessarily to make sure that the stock market only moves up every single day. I think that would be that I'm just trying to think of it from the perspective of people who want to manipulate the markets in an effective way. I think the most effective way to do it is, yeah, okay, there's, there's a lot of people out there, a lot of chatter. Obviously, the markets are in turmoil. Obviously, they're going down. But you let it go down a little bit, and then you bring it back up a little bit, and then you bring it back up a little bit more, and you bring it back up a little bit more. I think that's a more effective way of using that kind of uh, firepower than just to uh, make the markets only go up. I think that would be pretty obvious to everyone involved that it's manipulated. And again, this is fundamentally about faith. It's about trust. It's about belief if people believe in the markets or not. It's not even a question of whether they're necessarily personally invested in the markets even. It's just that we've been trained that the markets indicate the economy. And if the markets are doing well, then I guess everything's tickety-boo. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of people are still under that spell. And I think it's because the plunge protection team 
doesn't operate quite that obviously. They still allow the markets to plunge a little bit, and then they'll oh, take it up a little bit and a little bit and a little bit. I mean, I was much surprised when they let it fall Thursday and Friday of last week and then Monday of this week. I was amazed. It was almost as if they were just saying, well, we're not going to get involved. If they want us to fall, fall. Go ahead, see if we care. They didn't really appear to get involved until Tuesday and then today, Wednesday. Um, uh, and that was strange to me. I, I wondered why they were the why why they didn't jump in right away. And I know that they are apparently they're only supposed to stop a plunge, a fall. They're not really supposed to be boosting the market. They're just supposed to make sure that the market doesn't fall beyond a certain percentage on a particular day. Well, it didn't fall hit that percentage limit, and perhaps that's why they didn't get involved. We should also keep in mind, I think there are two different policy alternatives that uh, could take place right now, which, of course, is the Fed going ahead and hiking rates or the Fed going the exact opposite way, um, uh, cutting rates again, uh, starting QE4, which some people are talking about as being inevitable because of the way these markets are acting. And I, I, so there are certain interests, I think there are certain vested interests on both sides of that policy. Certain people want one, certain people want another. So if there are people within, for example, the plunge protection network who are interested in uh, seeing QE4, then allowing a little bit of a market slip, a little bit of Black Monday to spook the markets might be a way to then set up the narrative for the Fed starting, you know, QE4 down the road. So again, there's different reasons why certain things might be allowed, but I think we have to keep in mind that these markets are absolutely manipulated top to bottom. Absolutely. And and the thing about it, you know, there have been people who've been com- arguing that the markets are manipulated. For example, the Gold Antitrust Action Committee, GATA, they've argued that for a decade, I suppose. I'm not sure how long they've made the argument. Talking about gold, most people kind of ignored them initially, came around to believing them. But the truth of the matter is the plunge protection team has been established by Ronald Reagan's executive order back, I think it was 1987 or thereabouts. That plunge yes, as a response team, to the, by stopping yeah, the Black markets Monday. from falling, they are manipulating the markets. That is market manipulation, and it has been officially approved, sanctioned, and required by executive order. That's right. And if people go to, uh, I I did a a video a couple of years ago, How the Markets Are Manipulated, where I have a link to that executive order, 12631, Mm -hmm. and you can read. Absolutely. In their own words, it was uh, first issued on March 18th of 1988, and there it is in black and white. Let's, Let's rig the markets, basically. I understand that. So the markets, it's, this isn't a new thing. It's not a new conspiracy theory. This has been going on by law. But previously, the plunge protection team was only stopping a dramatic decline in market value. Now, it appears that the plunge protection team, or something like it, is causing a dramatic 400-point spike at the opening of the Tuesday and Wednesday markets. They have moved now. You know, I mean, it's undeniable the markets are being manipulated. One of the things I talked about in the first segment of the program before you were here is that I get so tired of government lying to me and deceiving me and treating me like a child. And what I was saying on the interview or in the first segment, I said, look, if the SS Titanic is going down, going down, fine. Let's just get in the lifeboats and we can make it. But as long as people are lying to me, they are distancing themselves from me. 
They're saying, we're over here, and we're one group over here, and we will lie to you, and we are separate from you. The lies separate us, in my opinion. It's no longer government of the people, by the people, for the people. It's government of the liars and imposed on the people that are trying to get at the truth. And I would just like to live in a world where truth was accessible on a regular basis. Do you see what I'm saying about how lies separate and divide Yes, absolutely. It's a good point because, again, I think we've been conditioned and trained to believe, well, uh, you know, these people are Americans just like me or they are Canadians just like me or they're Japanese just like me or whatever uh, the one's yeah. nationality might be. But, yeah, uh, obviously the, the point of this is, no, this is a separate group. It, it has nothing to do with nationality or patriotism or anything of that sort. These people are a different people. They, they, they have different aims. They have different agendas. And so, uh, absolutely. they're not here to help us. Exactly right. Yeah. And, and sometimes their their wants coincide with your wants and things are good, as I think Americans experienced in various periods of their history, where, where the, uh, the controlling group happened to coincide with their, their interests. But it doesn't at this point, And I think that's pretty obvious to everyone right now. Um, Sinclair went on at one point. He said uh, he's talking to sources. I know, I know another guru who always claimed to have sources in in Germany or Italy or Brussels or wherever he had sources. All right. He just got an email from people once in a while that were in foreign countries. He claimed them to be sources. If you catch my drift, sources that he couldn't identify. Okay, giving him secret information. Sinclair claims to have sources, and he claims to have them for a long time, and he said, I didn't call with the top and gold in 1980 because of any kind of system. I was told. I acted on what I was told. He is implying that the system, or excuse me, the sources have been making special information available to him for, you know, since at least 1980. And he says his sources are talking in, number one, the downside on gold is extraordinarily limited here. He's, gold can't go down anymore than it is right now, or at least not much, according to his sources. And two, the rally we are facing will come in gold. That's going to be stupendous. When gold goes, it's going to go big time. We can all hope that's true. Some of us can hope that's true. And three, he says, they may never call him back again. They told him they may never call him back again because this may be the rally you don't sell. This may be the rally you don't sell because gold is moving from a currency form to a valuation form. Do you have any idea what his sources mean when they say moving from a currency form to a valuation form? Because well, I, I like how you I like how you uh, frame that uh, thing about sources because I share your skepticism with such yeah, claims. Yeah. But <laughs> <clears throat> yes, but uh, yes. So uh, it is important to, for people to understand the the three functions of money, and I think we've talked about this before, but it bears repeating. Money is not just one to, to, totalizing thing. It is a unit of uh, measurement. It is a unit of account, and it is a unit of exchange. Uh, 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 sorry, store of value in a unit of exchange. So the pieces of paper that you hand people 
are not necessarily, they don't have to be the same thing that you measure those prices in, and they don't have to be the same thing that you use to store your wealth. And it just so happens that we've been trained that Federal Reserve notes are basically, or bank demand deposits are pretty much the only way to store our wealth or, or, and or trade and or value uh, prices. But, uh, but the idea here is why are we always looking at the price of gold in U.S. dollars if the U.S. dollar is not in and of itself inherently valuable, and if it is subject to collapse, maybe that isn't a good way of valuing gold. Uh, obviously, in a society where everything we do is is priced and termed in dollars, that's one thing. But as we move uh, away from such a society, people might measure things in, for example, ounces of gold or what have you. So, so again, that's kind of the underlying idea there. And I. You know, uh, yes. I mean, the point is that the U.S. dollar as some sort of gold standard, <laughs> excuse the pun, uh, of, you know, how to measure wealth is <laughs> obviously being eclipsed right now. But uh, but uh, will gold be that replacement? Uh, I'm skeptical about that, but we'll see. Um, certainly, I think, yes, the, the days of people looking at the price of gold in dollars and worrying about that on a daily basis, I think that will become a bit of history when we really start to see the collapse taking place. Because, you know, again, some uh, a currency that has uh, uh, lasted for thousands of years will be looked at as some sort of store of value in a time yeah. of, of craziness that we're about I to enter into. Let's take a break for a couple of commercials. I'll be back with James Corbett from the Corbett Report in just a moment. Please stay tuned. condition and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom Food prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, and Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. 
If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Folks, I'm Alfred Addis here on Financial Survival with our guest James Corbett from the Corbett Report, C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com. We're talking about we start out referencing an interview by James Sinclair earlier today with Greg Hunter and picking up some of James Sinclair's comments and asking James uh, what he thinks about these and. Uh, one of the things that Mr. Sinclair said, what is in coming up in front of us is the Great Reset, where currencies wear their gold like ladies wear a necklace, and the most beautiful necklace will be the strongest currencies. The ladies without necklaces won't be invited to the ball. Do you see a some sort of a Great Reset coming, and could there be a reset without using gold as a primary basis for a change in how we value our currencies? Uh, global currency reset is certainly something that's in the zeitgeist and has been for a while. I don't know if I subscribe, certainly don't subscribe to it in the sense that I don't think the gold standard or gold-backed currencies are going to make a comeback because I don't think that's the ultimate plan of the uh, the would-be planners. Uh, I, I think the crash is planned. I think that is part of the plan, but I don't think that making gold uh, a backing of anything is part of the plan for anyone, China or any other country, even the ones that are holding, hoarding gold at a f furious pace like China or Russia. I don't think their ultimate plan is to back their gold, currency with gold. I'll be interested. I'll be flabbergasted to see if I'm proven wrong on that. But I think the ultimate game plan is exactly what we've seen the narrative trajectory being for a while, which is for Perhaps, you know, a country like uh, China to use their, their uh, gold holdings as, as one sort of instrument they can use to try to reassure their own markets. But also, I think, to uh, again, to position themselves better so that they can slot into the IMF special drawing rights currency basket. I think that is where this is going. This is going towards a kind of international multilateral fiat currency. That's what the, uh, the the planners have have been angling for, have been explicitly advocating in policy papers, have been talking about and planning for years, at least since the uh, 2008 collapse and the 2009 G20, where Gordon Brown declared you know the beginning of the new world order, and they set up the uh, Financial Stability Board, which is working on the bail-in policy papers. Again, all of this adds up to a global fiat currency system, which they're working towards step by step, and I think the. The collapse will be part of that. So in that respect, yes. I mean, in, in terms of the eclipse of the U.S. dollar, certainly, absolutely. But I don't think it's going to be a, a gold backing. If there's anything to that, it might be that countries like China or Russia will be incentivized to reveal their real gold holdings, not the uh, what, whatever they claim to be having at the moment. They might reveal their full stash in order to give themselves a big, bigger place at that table. But again, I don't think they're going to fully back their currencies because that would stop them from do, joining in the funny money 
printing press uh, brigade. And, uh, and China, for, for example, for one, has certainly been a leading member of that brigade for the last several years. When we talk about a great reset, or this is a term that Jim Sinclair has used here, and it's global reset, whatever. How the only kind of reset I can imagine that they can accomplish without gold is to install a single global currency. I can't see how without gold we can establish multiple currencies at a new value, relative value. Because all of these things are just teeter totters. What is the value of the dollar relative to, to the euro? And what's the value of the euro relative to the, uh, the yuan? These are just sitting on teeter-totters, and, and they're teeter-totters on teeter-totters on teeter-totters. The whole thing is like a giant mobile, you know, suspended right, around right, your head right. when you go to bed at night. And if yes. you move one to the yes, right, the other one's got to move to the red, left, and one goes up, one goes down. I don't see how they're going to get these people that are in control of each national currency or regional currency to agree that we'll take a particular valuation. But how has this system functioned for the last 45 years? Well, it's functioned under the illusion that the dollar was good as gold. Exactly right, and and explicitly after the delinking of the dollar from gold. So it has explicitly been ba based on absolutely nothing other than the U.S. government's good word no, and exactly. uh, sterling reputation around the, the world. Petrodollar. And yes, there's the petro petrodollar and uh, all of that kind of machination. But the the system has been functioning as a completely fiat system for yeah, decades. Buddy, it will continue to do so. The difference is in your analogy, up until this point, the seesaw has been one side U.S. dollar, the other side everything else. And at this point, they want to move towards the mobile idea where it's, it's a number of different things. And they're, gonna, they're going to try to trot it out as, hey, look, this brings a bigger balance. Now we don't have to worry exclusively about the U.S. and what they're doing. Now we have all these different countries that we can balance it out for. And I, uh, that, is, that is explicitly what they are arguing for in their policy papers right now. And uh, I think that's, they're, they're going to try to do it. It is insanity. It is stupid. It is not a system that you would want to base any type of world currency on, even if you did want a world currency. But uh, they're going to do it. I, I really do think that that's what's in the cards. And I don't think, I mean, I just, I just don't see gold backing as, uh, as something that any of the, uh, the crooks at the top of any of these oligarchies want. Oh, I agree they don't want it. Because it puts a restriction on them, it ties them to reality, and they can't just conjure their currency out of thin air and do whatever they want with it. I mean, gold establishes a kind of reality, but even if you establish that a dollar is only worth a thousandth of a gram, all right, and the euro is worth two thousandths of a gram, and I don't, the yuan, yuan, that's worth three thousand, and yen is worth, you know, something. If you've got that single common denominator like gold, and we are all a fixed value relative to gold, it gives us a situation there. there's a kind of reality here that we can deal with and make sense of. But when a dollar is nine-tenths of a euro, and a euro is four-tenths of a yuan, and a yuan is I don't know what percentage of a, of a yen, and a yen is some percentage of the dollar, the whole thing becomes circular, irrational, impossible to control from my perspective. So if there's going to be a, if there's going to be a reset, I don't know how they're going to pull it off. From my perspective, I know they don't want gold, but I don't see how they can pull it off without gold.
Um, the, the same way they've been doing it for 44 years now. Yeah, but this the 44 years started with gold. It was gold up to a point, and then it wasn't. And people were conditioned enough where they accepted these pieces of paper and said, well, they're good as gold. Well, not anymore, but people didn't notice or understand. But what are they going to do with a new global currency? How are they going to say, oh, this is real money here? How do I distinguish that from monopoly money? <laughs> Well, of course, no one's ever going to see or use the SDRs. Those are just reserve currencies. So it'll all be behind the scenes. You'll still use your dollar. I'll still use the yen over here. It'll just be that those currencies are by, by D, fiat, really, linked up behind the scenes via the, the central banks themselves trading in these SDRs. So it'll be a system that no one will understand. No one will think about. No one will be looking at, you know, how, how many, uh, what's the percentage of the yen and the SDR this week? No one will care about that on the day-to-day -day consumer level. It'll be completely engineered behind the scenes at the international level, which is, I think, the really most insidious part of all of this is that we're, we're being, we are at this point being slotted into an international system that most people don't even know exists, let alone care how it, how it actually works. I understand that. I think in that regard, Sinclair perhaps agrees with what you're saying. He went on to say the dollar is always going to be with us, and the yuan and all the currencies are still going to be there. We are not going to one single currency. That's his, that's his prediction. There won't be a single global currency that we can that we can identify at the local level. It won't be that I'll use a single global currency to go get a hot dog on a, you know, a slushy down at the 7-Eleven or whatever. I will still be using my dollar, but the learned elders, they will determine how many slushies I can get from my dollar. And uh, they will do that to help me and help the people of China and Japan, and the world will be a better place. Will the world be a better place? We'll get this single global currency does it really help us does it hurt us is this a benefit or a curse well a better place for who and in what time scale um there will be benefits from yeah. this changeover of the system for certain groups of people as you can no doubt imagine but i think even in the wider perspective there will be groups of people who will benefit from this, uh, even at the bottom rungs of the economic ladders in some of the emerging markets, etc., that will get a bigger slice of the pie when the pie is rebaked or, or what have you by the IMF and, and that system. Um, so that, for example, I mean, not just the BRICS, but the various different groupings of emerging markets that have been proposed in recent years as kind of alternatives to the Washington consensus. Yes, a lot of those people in those countries will benefit from a, a sort of reordering of the system, at least at first. But it's really, to my mind, the, the financial and monetary wedding of these various countries together in some sort of grander system may have those kind of short-term economic benefits for people who are on the bottom rungs of the economic ladder in some countries. But in the long run, this isn't about the money or the, 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 the financial system per se. It's about the control and the power and government. And I think that what we're seeing is the, the sort of cornerstones, the foundation for global government being slotted into place. That's going yeah. to involve global taxation. It's going to involve global currency. It's going to involve global regulation of first business matters and then more into judicial matters and a world court and 
And then before you know it, oh, hey, it's a global government. And I think that's where this is aiming. And under a global government, I think it's quite obvious or should be to anyone who sees the ways that governments inevitably tend to, uh, to accrue more and more power to a smaller and smaller group of people. That's the way global government will work. And at that point, what is, what is the way out of that? How do, you, how do you actually claw back any of the powers that catch a global government tries catch to accrue to itself? Find out who they are and catch them. <laughs> um, Sinclair has predicted for a number of years that he thinks the eventual price of gold will rise to $50,000 per ounce. Do you think that's, and we're going to assume he means in terms of today's dollars. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you think that's a credible prediction? Well, again, there's a lot of people who have talked about the uh, if you just took the, the the paper claims on gold and 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 looked at it versus the actual supply and then worked out what it would be. I've heard the number fifty thousand dollars kicked around by several different analysts. Yeah. So that would be some sort of rational. If things turn to some sort of rational system where things were rationally valued, one would think it would be, at any rate, much higher than it is today. I'm not going to make any specific claims about any specific dollar values that it would or would not eventually land at. But again, I think the real important part of that will be when people stop measuring things in terms of U.S. dollars. I mean, when people stop thinking of an ounce of gold as $50,000 or whatever, that will be the real point at which Gold, having gold will be more important than having dollars. And at that point, it doesn't really matter how many zeros you add at the end of that dollar figure. Do you think the price of gold is likely to go up in this brave new world we're coming towards or we're heading towards where we may have something like a global currency? Will the price of gold go up or will it, as a, as a monetary metal, and that's where its real power is, or will it remain just a commodity like wheat, corn, and uh, and uh, pork bellies? Or, uh, right. Well, it's certainly not just a regular commodity, and I, I don't think it will ever, ever be seen just as a regular commodity, given its uh, thousands of years of history as a monetary metal. But having said that, I mean, will it go up? Um, for example, in the market mayhem of, uh, of the last, week and early this week, we saw a, a significant spike in gold, but then we saw it lose some of those gains, and now it's gaining some of them back. And the volatility, again, is indicative of something fundamental that's underlying this that is, uh, that is skewing things. And uh, again, any rational reading of the kind of market mayhem we've seen in the last few days would, by gold's traditional standard as, as a, f a flight to safety type of uh, safe harbor, it should be gaining right now, and it isn't at least straight up um, un unqualifiedly gaining. And uh, and I think that shows the amount of manipulation that happens in that market. So there is going to be some up and there is going to be some down before we get to whatever the initiating event of the real collapse will be. At that point, it's a very good question at whether... I mean, if things are going to play out as, as we've been talking about with the, uh, the, the sort of the institution of a multilateral fiat like the SDR, then obviously gold still has to be repressed somehow in that system, because otherwise everyone would just flock to something like gold and it would become the de facto uh, kind of global currency. But I, I, again, I don't think that's part of the currency. Plan. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So I, I I don't I, I don't know how they could possibly keep it suppressed during the kind of collapse scenario that we're talking about. But then again, 
They've been able to suppress it for a very long time under very interesting market conditions. So it will be, uh, if nothing else, it will be very interesting to see how it happens. We'll have to look further next week. We're out of time, James. I want to thank James Corbett for being on the program this evening. Now it will be broadcast on Thursday. Um, I want to thank all of you folks for listening. And Melody and I will be back tomorrow. In the meantime, with the good Lord bless you, me, Melody, Frank, the producer, and James Corbett. Good night. Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets
assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149. $49.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System.
right, good evening all. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is the 26th of August, Wednesday, 2015, eight and a half minutes past 8 p.m. Pacific time. That all works out live where you're at. We are live. That means you can participate in the call in the... I say this a million times, and yet I can still screw it up. Isn't that special? You can you can participate in the show by calling in 800-932-1980. 800-932-1980, and you'll be on the air. Everybody will hear you. They'll be able to identify your voice print and come to your house and arrest you, drag you through the streets, tar and feather you, and use that guillotine that's on every corner. Oh, wait. There isn't a guillotine on every corner, but hey, we can just say there are. Well, probably not. But anyway, you can go to the chat room, and uh, that's located at our website, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. Look for the chat link, and then uh, you'll be in there. Several people in there right now having a good old time. You can be in there having a good old time along with them. You can also instant message me on Yahoo Instant Messenger. A-V-R-N Talk is my screen name. And there you go. All right. There we go. Somebody in the chat room is asking me, is my uh, theme song going to change for September? Probably. Uh, I've kept this one a couple of months. I like this song. Uh, It's by Doc Holliday, for those of you out there that you know, aren't familiar with the band. you got to be familiar with the song by now, but uh, the band is Doc Holliday. They're kind of a southern rock band. And uh, I like that song, but, you know, hey, I, I like a lot of songs, so we'll try to get one equally as good for September. Oh, but, of course, that's... that's <laughs> presuming we're not all dead by September, right? Better hurry up. There's only a couple days left. Yeah, get your shopping done now. The sale is over in a few days. It Anyway, I've got a pile of stuff here and I mean uh quite a quite a big quite a bunch of big stuff uh here. Big pile. Uh 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 where to start? Where to start? Okay, let me start at this end and we'll just do here. Oh, boy. (laughs) Uh, See, I looked this stuff up, and I read these stories earlier today, and I put them up here going, yeah, I'll do this later. Well, and I don't know which one's which when I just look at the tab up here and click on it. So the first one, headline is this. Consumer Reports study find that nearly all ground beef sold in America has feces in it. Those of you wondering, feces, you mean like cow feces, like faces or something? No, feces as in crap, poop, dung, that. Yeah, yeah, nearly all ground beef sold in America has feces in it. What? The mega thick federal bureau, the mega, mega, Megalithic federal bureaucracy known as the U.S. Department. Megalithic. Okay. That's... 
boy, everybody's got to write their news stories, you know, like they're writing a romance novel or something, or or they want to get out there thesaurus and say, hmm, I, I want to sound smart, so, uh, hmm, what can I use here? Megalithic. Wow. Federal bureaucracy known as the U.S. Department of Agriculture is made up of 100,000 employees who are stationed at 4,500 locations across the country. Their mission statement, in part, reads, to promote agriculture production that better nourishes Americans. Because, you know, you have a pesticide, herbicide, and toxic heavy metal deficiency going on. So they're trying to nourish you. A recent study by Consumer Reports, however, shows that nourishing Americans consists of feeding them deadly superbugs, food poisoning pathogens, and feces. While it's not surprising to readers of the Free Thought Project that the U.S. government could fall, fail so miserably in their stated mission, well, really, it's not hard to believe, is it, folks, that they fail in their stated mission here? They fail in everything they do. As far as their stated missions go, as far as the people thinking they're there to protect you, they fail. But in what they're really trying to accomplish, they are succeeding marvelously. Because what their end goal is, is to take everything you own and transfer it to them and then kill you. You think that is conspiratorial? You think that's a little paranoid? Well, like I said, you need to go read the United Nations documents to which the United States is a signatory. You really do. Their goal is to rob everything you've got of wealth and transfer it to them, then kill you. But their stated goal is to help you. This recent study exhibits an unrivaled level of incompetence within this behemoth bureaucracy. Well... That's if you give them the benefit of the doubt, like we always like to. See, these these writers here that write this stuff, they're doing a good service by letting us know what's going on. But on the same hand, they're doing a disservice by giving them the benefit of the doubt and just saying, well, it's because they're incompetent and they're stupid. Oh, yes, those stupid federal employees, those dummies, those incompetent, stupid people those stupid... See, you can feel sorry for a stupid person. You can even cut a stupid person some slack. And and we all sit there and like to joke how stupid they are, but they're not stupid, folks. They're evil, and they are acting with mal-intent. Okay? So don't think that this is incompetence within this behemoth bureaucracy. It's not incompetence. Okay, it is not incompetence. It is deliberate negligence in order to promote their agenda. Consumer Reports tested several hundred packages of ground meat from stores across America, and their findings were shocking, to say the least. According to their report, 
New lab tests conducted by Consumer Reports found that of the 300 packages of ground beef purchased in stores across the country, almost all contained bacteria that signified fecal contamination. More than 40% contained Strapococcalus aureus, uh, aureus. Almost 20% contained Colostridum perfrigens, which causes nearly 1 million cases of food poisoning annually, many related to beef. A significant amount also contained superbugs, bacteria that are resistant to three or more classes of antibiotics. A key reason is the overuse of antibiotics on cattle farms. The irony here is that the local organic farmers who have harmed no one, are being raided by SWAT teams for selling raw milk, eggs, or grass-fed beef. Meanwhile, millions of people are getting sick and dying across the country by government-subsidized factory farms. Okay. That paragraph right there, in itself, works to to evidence that what's going on is not simple incompetence. Okay? This is not incompetence. They are kicking in doors and arresting people for selling raw milk, eggs, and grass-fed beef. They are allowing factory farms to poison people. This is not incompetence. They are doing this because the factory farms pay them protection money. They are rubbing out the competition and protecting their criminal enterprise. This is what's actually going on. It's not incompetence, folks. We would be we would be so far better off if it actually was just incompetence. But it's far far, far more serious than incompetence. And, hey, this is a food supply. And it goes on and on and on here, but I think you got the gist of the matter. We got real problems, and folks, you know, you got to try to buy your stuff locally. I, honestly, I cringe when I'm at the store, because our local food for less, you can watch them. You know, they have a, a butcher shop, basically, in the meat section, you got the meat section there, and then you've got this glass wall where you can actually watch these guys during the day, you know, cut up beef, you know, package up the ground beef and things like that. Now, I'm not saying, oh, well, then there's no way that you could be get sick because, hey, that beef, you know, you're still, the superbug thing is still there because they're buying this beef from farms, who knows where. You know, unless it's organic, unless it's said that, hey, you know, we don't use antibiotics, well, then fine. But if you're just buying the regular beef that has none of those statements on it, you don't know where it's coming from. You don't know how many antibiotics are uh, they've been given it. You don't know if it's got uh, resistant bugs in it. It could. But chances are it's not going to have feces in it because that happens when you grind it up, you know. So if you're going to eat beef, Really, folks, and meat, try to get it locally, try to get it, and I know organic and stuff costs more, but, you know, do what you can, folks, 
or or at least try to decontaminate the stuff when you get it. You know what I mean? Like, uh, well, Melissa was just telling me earlier. You know, yeah, hey, yeah, take this, uh, you know, apple cider vinegar you got in a spray bottle, and uh, you know, if you're gonna cook chicken or something before you cook it, you know, when it's just sitting there, spray it down with the uh, apple cider vinegar. You know, it's probably a good idea. It's not a guarantee, but, you know, uh, maybe soak it in water first and then dry it off and spray it with apple cider vinegar. Really, folks, you got to be more careful than you used to be. I cringe when I'm at the store and I see people buying you know, those big plastic tubes of, of hamburger meat that you don't know where that stuff comes from. It just comes in these frozen tubes. It's like, oh, my gosh. You know, how much of that is pink slime, too? You know, there's also that. All right. Let's move on to some more government shenanigans. TSA airport-style searches begins on all Amtrak trains. Yay! Isn't this going to be great? Yay, now at the train station, you're going to be molested just like at the airport. No way to travel for you. Yes. Here's it says, All persons and property, including vehicles, are subject to search beyond this point. If you elect to enter this area, you may be subject to mandatory screening. Your safety is our priority. That's a notice that you'll see at the Amtrak train station now. Our government is stepping up its plans to search everyone, anywhere, whether you're traveling by air, rail, ferry, or bus. Beginning this week, and almost four years since writers warned Americans that our government wants to search people on trains, it's finally become a reality. The Baltimore Sun reported Amtrak will begin searching all passengers. Passengers failing to consent to security procedures will be denied access to trains. But yet they'll let homosexuals engineer their trains right around tracks so they crash them. Yes, let's not check. Oh, there's nothing wrong with homosexuals. They're not mentally unstable and dangerous public health hazards. No, they get to run the trains off the tracks at 100 miles an hour going around a curve in the middle of a city. But you... Grandma, you want to get on the train? You're going to have to be strip-searched. I don't know if that level of security we have at airports would be practical at train stations, said Vernon Heron, University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Washington, D.C. and New York City, our financial district and our seat of power in Washington, D.C., those types of targets are always going to be on their radar. What does this mean for anyone taking a government train? Yes, and that's Amtrak, government-subsidized loser. It loses money all the time. They cannot have a business. And they lose money. And do you realize, do you realize that it costs twice as much money if you wanted to take a train from Los Angeles to New York City, it would cost you two or three times more than it would to get an airline ticket. And it would take you two weeks. Yeah. Gee, I wonder why they're losing money. Gee, 
They can never make a profit. I wonder why. Oh, maybe because everybody on there is a government employee making too much money. It means everyone will be subject to airline-style boarding procedures. In Europe, you won't find pre-boarding ticket checks on any international intercity train line except Eurostar between London and Paris for border control purposes. By importing the Security Theater of Air Travel, DHS, sorry, I mean Amtrak, will treat everyone like a suspected terrorist. Just who's going to be conducting these security procedures? Why, Amtrak employees and police, of course. If an Amtrak employee questions you, it's because they're trained to suspect everyone. Wow. Since 2010, Amtrak's blue campaign has been used as an excuse to identify suspected human traffickers. Yeah, men. Traveling with children will be subject to enhanced security. Not women traveling with children. Now, wait a minute. Is this discrimination... Is this sexism? I think it is, isn't it? That only men traveling with children would be subject to enhanced security, but not women traveling with children. Perhaps Amtrak's employees will engage children in conversation or demand a statement of their relationship status with the accompanying adult. Over 8,000 Amtrak employees overtly or covertly examine passengers for the validity of their identification, their level of stress, how they interact, and their conversations. Folks, this is Nazi America. This is exactly what the Nazis did. I mean, how much... Are you kidding me? The validity of their identifications... Let me see your papers. Their level of stress. Mm, he looks suspicious. He looks nervous. How they interact. I don't like the cut of his jib. And their conversations. I don't like what he said. He said homosexuals are abominations. And I'm an Amtrak employee. And of course I'm a homosexual. So I don't like hearing that. So guess what? You're off the train. Yeah, welcome to America, folks. You kidding me? On on July 25th, 2012, DHS held an event to update stakeholders on recent activities and to provide a platform for participants to offer individual feedback regarding the department's blue campaign efforts. Don't be alarmed if you see men in tactical gear with an attack dog approaching you. It's for your safety. These men in black fatigues are Amtrak's police or visible intermodal prevention and response or Viper teams will conduct baggage searches and interrogate you. Viper has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? Wow. Oh, and you know what else? 
They have them in plain clothes, and they are designed to blend in with passengers. So you're never going to know. So you better never talk to anybody on the train because he could be there to surveil you and to, you know, determine whether your conversation is acceptable to be on the train. Wow. You know, they're, they're, really, folks, 20 years ago, if I would have told you this, you would have said, well, his tinfoil hat's on too tight, uh, he's gone insane, he's over the edge, uh, he's just completely paranoid, he probably needs to be confined and, uh, you know, and get some treatment and all that, right? You would. And that's you people listening to AVR right now, 20 years ago. If I'd have told you this story that I just read to you that's going on right now, you'd have thought I was completely off the, <laughs> off the rails. But here it is. Here it is, and it's happening. Oh, man. <sighs> you know, what are you going to do? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to take a break in a minute here. But when I come back, I've got another story here that at least there is a leading medical journal now that does, in fact, want GMO labeling. Yeah, now that's something, isn't it? But of course, you know, the industry doesn't, so we'll see how that goes. We'll read the story when we come back. Everybody stay right where you're at. Call you up with my last time. 
have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541 Two two five four six five nine. That's five four one two two five four six five nine. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. Come on, let me show you where it's at. Come on, let me show you where it's at. I want to show you. Come on, 
the place. I like it like that. Now the last time I was down, man, I lost my shoes. They had some cat shouting the food. The people was yelling out for more. And all there was there was no man, no, come on. Come on, let me show you where it's at. All right, we're back. This is the Frank Report. Uh, I'm your uh, host, Francis Steffen. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It's August 26, 2015. It's Wednesday, about 8.37, almost 8.38 out here on the Pacific Time Coast, 800-932-1980 if you want to call in. And uh, you can also go to the... uh, chat room, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com <clears throat> Yahoo Instant Messenger you can uh, contact me directly IABRN Talk is my screen name well, and nobody seemed to try to guess who those uh, bands were that I played So I don't know if I should even tell them. Well, I will. The first one was If Money Talks. That was not the Georgia Satellites, but they do sound like them. But it was Jason and the Scorchers. And the second song there, I know you are familiar with it. You've heard it before. I like it like that. That is by Chris Kenner. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway... So let us move on. Leading Medical Journal wants GMO labeling. How about you? Do you want GMO labeling? I mean, why wouldn't you? Don't you want to know if it's GMO or not? Don't you want to have a choice? How can you possibly give informed consent if you don't know what it is? Oh, I trust you. Well, I don't trust them. I want to know what it is. I want GMO labeling. And you know what? For these companies to say, oh, but it would cost a fortune. It would put poor farmers out of business. Yeah, it probably would end up putting farmers out of business, but not because the labeling costs so much. What would put the farmers and these companies out of business is the fact that when people started seeing this is GMO, that's GMO, it's all GMO, gee, they'd start going, well, okay, let me start looking for the labels that are not GMO and start buying that, just like happened in Europe. See, they see, they've already seen what happens. Europe's banned a lot of GMOs, but they allow some in, but they do require labeling. So when it gets on the shelf and it's like, this is a GMO product, well, guess what? Nobody buys that crap. So they don't sell much of it. So they don't have much of it on the shelves, because what's the point of putting it on the shelves if nobody will buy it? They don't want that here, man. They don't want that here at all. They want to infest the market so deeply that 
even labeling won't help. It's the same game they've got going on with illegal aliens, folks. They don't change their game plan. They just move it from different thing to different thing to different thing. They're not that bright, folks. You know, you think these guys are all geniuses and, oh, well, they're the elite. They're not elite. Elite means you're something better than average. These people are not better than average, okay? They started out with a silver spoon in their mouth. Look, any halfwit out there could make money if he starts off with a billion dollars from daddy. You'd have to be a complete idiot not to be able to make money if you start out with a billion dollars. Even if you start out with a million dollars, you're a moron if you can't make money. They're not better than average. They're below average. As a matter of fact, they're like mongoloid retards. Inbred freaks. They just keep using the same things over and over and over again, and the only thing they count on is the fact that they got guys out here with guns forcing you to put your children in the public fool system or we'll take them away. We'll come to your house with guns. We're child protection services. You'll get your children vaccinated so they can become morons, so they can't learn, so they'll never get an IQ over 90. And they keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. Oh, yeah, let's flood the country with Mexicans. And that way they'll be so entrenched in this country that you'll never be able to get rid of them. Well, Hillary Clinton said, well, we don't live in a country where anybody wants to see people dragged out of houses and families separated and people, you know, doors kicked in. That's not the America that I live in. Right? Well, hey, That's not the America I want to live in either. So, you want to get rid of illegal aliens? You want to address this issue for real? Listen up, Donald. You know, you're the new poster boy for let's do something about illegal aliens. Okay, listen up, Donald. Here's the answer. Here's the solution. You don't kick indoors. You don't even have to build a wall. You don't even have to put up a fence. All you have to do is take away the incentive for being here. Okay? That's all it takes. You take away the incentive for being here. You don't get any welfare if you're an illegal alien. You don't get any food stamps if you're an illegal alien. You don't get any free medical care if you're an alien, unless, of course, it's life-threatening. Then, of course, you know, look, I don't want to see, you know, I I want people, if you have a life-threatening medical thing, to be treated and stabilized and released. But other than, oh, you're going to sit in the uh, emergency room and use it as your primary care doctor? No, you're not. You get no free medical. You get no free schooling if you're an illegal alien. You get no jobs if you're an illegal alien because, you know what, if we catch a business, 
hiring illegal aliens the first time for a non-corporate business. It's a $500 fine and a warning that next time we seize your business and all your personal assets and sell it at auction and put you in jail for a year. Corporations, the first time, it's a $50,000 fine. And the second time, we jail your whole board of directors and the CEO for a year. You're going to prison. The corporation's charter will be canceled. There will be no more of you. No more uh, Tyson. Bye-bye. Your charter to exist, you fictional person, is revoked. Goodbye. So let's see. No school. No medical. No food stamps. No welfare money. No jobs. Why golly. You know, there's not a whole lot of incentive to be here because, listen... These Mexicans and Central Americans are not coming up here because they want to be around white people or because the weather's better up here than it is down where they come from. They come up here for the stuff, for the free stuff. Take away that stuff and they won't come here anymore. As a matter of fact, they'll go back home where they're more comfortable. Another step you could take... See, everything I mentioned, a president could do with existing law and executive order. Now, if you wanted a little cooperation from the Congress, if you were a popular enough president, maybe you could get the people to start standing on the necks of some of these senators and congressmen and say, listen, we want English to be the official language of the United States. Now, that doesn't mean you get arrested if you speak in a foreign language somewhere. What it means is no government documents will be printed in any language except English. Hey, that's going to save a lot of money. We all want to save money, right? We want to be fiscally responsible, don't we? Yeah. And like I said, it doesn't mean anybody's going to jail or you're forbidden from speaking a foreign language or anything like that. It just means there will be no government forms. Printed in any language but English. Okay. Seems reasonable. That's not that's not so bad, huh? Well, wow, let's see. You better start speaking English. You don't get any any stuff. Why would you want to be here? You wouldn't want to be here. You wouldn't even need a fence. People are coming here for the stuff. They are been encouraged by the federal government to come here to get free stuff. Hey, we're having a we're having a free giveaway. You know, look, man, it's like going to an AA meeting and saying there's an open bar across the street, free booze. What do you think's going to happen? That's what the federal government's done. You want to change it? Take away the incentives. You don't have to drag anybody out of their houses. You don't have to separate families. You know what? Because if mommy and daddy can't get work, they can't get medical, the kids can't go to school because they're illegals, (laughs) guess what? 
Mommy and Daddy are going to take their kids and leave. And you know what? If life's tough in Mexico or Central America, that's too damn bad. Go back home and change your own country. That's like California's moving to other other states saying, but not the way we did in California. Yeah, and California is a cesspool now, thanks to people like you, because of the way you did it in California. You want to do it like you did it in California? Go back to California. But... Do I think Donald Trump's going to do any of that? No, I don't. He might. Hey, I'd be surprised if he does. But that's the answer. Okay? You can build a fence if you want. Okay? As a matter of fact, I would build a wall. And the only reason I would build a wall is not because I'd be concerned about keeping everybody out or in or whatever. It'd be because, well... All these troops that I'd be bringing home from 149 countries around the world where we're intimidating and killing innocent people, oh, I'd be putting them on the southern border. And, they're, you know, these troops would have to have something to do. So build a nice big wall. A nice big thick wall. It'll take a while, but we got time because you got nothing to do anyway. You know, sure, you see somebody trying to cross the border, shoot them. But, you know, probably not going to be that many people doing that, seeing as how there's no more free stuff. The free stuff giveaway's over. Think he's going to do that? I don't. But we'll see. Anyway, I got off on this from the GMO labeling because it's the same darn thing. The GMO companies are trying to flood this nation with so many GMOs and infest the food supply to such an extent that you can't get rid of them, they say. But folks, just like taking away the free stuff, take away the incentive, GMO labeling is the same answer. Let the people decide. But you got to give them the information, which is, who's going to argue with that? Oh, you don't think? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, Monsanto. You just got done telling me that, oh, your stuff's so great. Your stuff's so good. It's so much better than what God made. It's just wonderful, right? Well, then you sound pretty dang proud of it. Shouldn't you be out there wanting people to know, hey, this is GMO. Boy, it's really great stuff, man. This is the best thing going since sliced bread. Wow, wow, wow. GMO, come and get it. If it's so dang good, shouldn't you be out there wanting? Shouldn't Monsanto want its GMO garbage labeled so everybody can know that, ooh, this is the good stuff? No, they don't. Why? Because, you see, they know it's not the good stuff. They know the public doesn't want it if they knew what it was. Just like, look, you don't have to force people into good ideas. Like vaccinations. Oh, it's such a good idea. It's so good for you. It's so good for the children. It's so good for everybody. That's why we're forcing you to do it. Well, you know what? If it was such a great idea, 
and everybody was seeing the wonderful benefits of being vaccinated, everybody'd be lining up to get it done. But they're not. The government has to force them to get vaccinated. Why? Because the public realizes this is not a good idea, there are no benefits to it, and I don't want to do it. So the government's like, well, we're going to make you do it. For your own good, of course. No, it isn't for your own good. You don't have to force people to do good things. No, you have to force them to do stuff they don't want to do. You have to force them to do things that is not good for them. Because people will generally do... If people go, oh, look at that. All these people getting vaccines, man. They're healthier. They're happier. Everything's better for them. I'm going to go get me a vaccine. This is how people are. If they see something good, they want it. But then on the other hand, if they see something bad, hey, Johnny got a vaccine and he's an idiot now. Oh, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Edwards across the street there, he got a flu shot. Now he's in a wheelchair. Hmm, gee, maybe I'm going to avoid getting those shots. Oh, but the government will now force you for your own good, of course. Use your head, folks. Use a little critical thinking. If things are so good about GMOs, why are they so against labeling it? Oh, is it because the public's too stupid to know what's good for them? Because that is what Monsanto says. At the end of the day, that's what they say. That the public is too stupid to know what's good for them. They think GMOs are bad. They bought in all this bad propaganda about our our poison food. So, we'll go buy the government off and they'll force it so we don't have to label and nobody will ever know what they're eating. Okay, so everybody figures that, you know, you know, a lot of people are talking about September and all kinds of things. Everything from volcanoes to asteroids to tsunamis to whatever. And, of course, a financial collapse. Now, listen. <laughs> a financial collapse. You don't need any crystal ball. You don't have to be a prophet. You don't have to hear voices or see visions uh, or anything like that to know there is a financial problem coming. There is a collapse about to happen and when I say about, that could mean the next year, okay? Because these guys have held this mess together a lot longer than I thought they could have. So they'll probably hold it together longer than I think they can now, too. But it's collapsing, and there's nothing they can do about it. They've got no more tricks up their sleeve. There is nothing else to do. It's a Ponzi scheme that has come to the end of the line. This is why those are illegal, because it gets to the end of the line, and there is nothing you can do to save it. That's why they made them illegal, except, you know, if you're the government. Now, you might think, well, yeah, but, you know, Ash, so the stock market lost 2,000 points in a, in a month, but, yeah, they had a great day today. Yeah, they had a great day today, but guess what? 23 nations around the world... Stock market crashes are already happening in 23 nations around the world, man. 
You think, you know, oh, the New York Stock Exchange. You know, this is this America-centric uh, attitude that the world, the universe, revolves around the United States. Biblical prophecy revolves around the United States. All things revolve around the United States. Well, you might want to believe that, but that's not reality. That's not the way it is. Okay? Sure, the United States has a lot of influence and, uh, you know... It crashing will facilitate an economic crash because it's infested the world with this fiat currency system. But there's 23 nations experiencing a stock market crash right now, as we're speaking. Malaysia, Brazil, Egypt, China, Indonesia, South Korea, Turkey, Chile, Colombia, Peru, Bulgaria, Greece, Poland, Serbia, Slovenia, Ukraine, Ghana, Kenya... Morocco, Nigeria, Singapore, Taiwan, and Thailand all are having stock market crashes right now. Gee, that can't be good. That can't be that can't be good. Don't you think that could drag down everybody? Eventually, folks, you know, and uh, it's just you know, all you can do is prepare the best you can. And you need to get, if you haven't started, get started. I see some people in the chat room have uh, ramped up their uh, preparations and they're making great headway from what they've described. And, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm gratified that people are acting, okay? I hope you'll be one of them. Here's something to leave you with. Government wants RFID tracking chips implanted in welfare recipients. Oh, man. Okay, this is not in the United States just yet. Okay, so it's not the United States government that's saying we want to, uh, you know, chip welfare recipients. But this caught my eye because of the country that is, well, it's not the country. It's one guy, uh, a politician from Finland's Conservative Party, okay, uh, he is suggesting that uh, welfare recipients get implanted with satellite tracking chips. Why? Following news that some recipients continued receiving payments after leaving the country to join ISIS. So I guess some Finns got recruited, some poor Finns on Welfare got recruited to join Blackwater, oh, now renamed ISIS or ISIL or ICE or whatever it is, uh, and they kept getting welfare. So now everybody should get chipped, right? Boy, apparently they have some dimwits in Finland along with that. Because, see, I'm half finished. My mom was from Finland. Uh, so, you know, when I see stories about Finland, I read them. And this is not a good one, and... Uh, Maybe they'll do it, maybe they won't. It's just one guy, but they're suggesting it. And you know, any bad idea that takes away freedom will soon and shortly be being discussed in the United States Congress. For your own good, of course. Anyway, I gotta go. I'll be back again tomorrow. Stay tuned. Good stuff coming up, as always. Thanks for listening.
Second Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149. $49.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. Food prices going up. Homes being foreclosed, unemployment insurance running out, jobs leaving the country. Many people cannot afford to eat or keep a roof over their head. Too many can do neither. Messiah's Branch has a mission church in Wichita, Kansas that helps the victims of this banker's economy, the American people, your neighbors. The mission is the last hope for so many Americans. We need your help to lift up the poorest of the poor. These are men, women, and children who once had homes now in the street. They all need what you need. First aid, beds, food, clothing, and so on. You can send a monetary gift or a box of necessities to 230 West 4th Street, Florence, Kansas, 66851. Or donate online by going to wichitahomeless.com. Or simply call 316 316- 
many people do you know these days with a neurological disorder? How many family members or people in your circle of friends have something like fibromyalgia or lupus? How about a brain tumor? Studies in the New England Journal of Medicine show a growing trend in the rate of such disorders in recent years. Perhaps like me, you've never given the issue much thought. But in 2002, I could no longer ignore it. I also became a statistic when I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. It was the summer of the Great Fire in Tucson, Arizona, when I began my research and traveled across this country to find the truth. Yeah, you know, the technology we have in looking at the brain has changed rather dramatically. Now, the increase in brain tumors has nothing to do with our ability to see these things, because that's been looked at. And the studies have shown that it's a real increase in brain tumors. It has nothing to do with our improvements in technology. The National Cancer Institute recorded an impressive increase in incident rates of primary brain cancer since 1985 and possibly as early as 1984. Dr. H.J. Roberts, director for the Palm Beach Institute for Medical Research, found this trend particularly disturbing. At a time when this trend was singularly attributed to more innovative scanning and diagnostic procedures, Roberts noticed a series of conflicting themes. First, Adequate brain scanning devices were widely available for at least 10 years prior to this report. Second, there were simply more people affected with brain cancer. They had nothing to do with the change in the way they were diagnosed or a different way of classifying the disease. Third, between 1983 and 1987, incidents of other forms of cancer outside the brain remained the same and in some cases declined. So why the vast increase in brain cancer and brain disorders since 1984? I'll refer to a published study by foremost neuroscientist, Dr. John Olney. He suggests one likely candidate. In 1983, the U.S. population began ingesting significant quantities of a substance never before used for human consumption. Artificial sweetener aspartame was quickly introduced to consumers. In 1984, 6,900,000 pounds of aspartame was consumed by Americans. This rate doubles by the next year and continues to climb into the 90s. When it was fully marketed for pop and everything by uh, July to August of 1983, six months later, by 1984, the brain tumor rate had already jumped 10% in the United States. The Diabetes rate had jumped 30%, and the incidence of brain lymphoma, a very aggressive and unusual type of brain tumor, jumped 60%. The uh, enormity of the problem is indicated by the fact that by 1988, in its own publication, 80% of complaints about food and additives that were volunteered to the FDA, and again, it didn't have to be submitted, had to deal with aspartame products, over 80%. You know, when 
you see these people uh, who say, well, you know, I take uh, MSG or Nutrisweet and it doesn't seem to bother me at all, uh, they're more resistant to the obvious toxic effects, but they're still getting very subtle toxic effects that over many years is going to uh, produce obvious uh, disease in those persons. Some persons can be exposed the first time and break up with a rash, have terrible headache, and so they presumably have never been exposed to it before. Um, but on the other hand, people who've taken it over the long term and exposing the body to uh, large doses of the components of aspartame, that's uh, in the realm of toxicity. And again, it, it's this variability in your sensitivity to toxins. Some people may notice very little, if anything. A majority of people will have one of a number of symptoms because we know that the aspartame, because it is a poison that affects protein synthesis, because it affects the, how the synapse operates in the brain, and because it affects DNA, can affect numerous organs. So you can get a lot of different symptoms that seem unconnected. But in looking at the list of symptoms submitted to the FDA, most of them are neurological or in some way connected to the nervous system. Um, so the nervous system seems to be one of the areas that's most affected. So we see people have difficulty thinking. Uh, they feel like they're walking around in a cloud or a fog. It's a subchronic level. It's not like you go out and you drink a bottle of methanol and you have this acute reaction to it. Uh, what, we're ha what we're seeing over a period of time is this slow accumulation of toxins within the body that, have, that start to disrupt the, the, um, the normal activity of the brain and the endocrine system, which is controlled by the, by the brain itself. But really the, the sort of um, symptoms one can get are pretty proteant. All types of symptoms can occur with, with aspartame. I mean, it clearly, you see, you need to look at the chemistry a little bit. I don't want to get too technical, but it clearly has an impact on what are called biogenic amines. These are, uh, well, neurotransmitters in the brain, norepinephrine, so on. We know, we've known for a long time, that when you take in a lot of aspartame in conjunction with carbohydrates, you will decrease the availability of uh, L-tryptophan, which is the building block for serotonin. There's been a lot of media attention recently to serotonin, a very, very important neurotransmitter, important in mood regulation and a, and a variety of functions. Uh, aspartame is uh, an artificial sweetener, an additive, and it's a chemical. It's not a natural product. It's a chemical. The molecule is made up of three components. Two are amino acids, the so-called building blocks of protein. One is called phenylalanine, which is about 50% of the molecule. And the other is aspartic acid, which is like 40%. The other 10% is a so-called methyl ester, which as soon as it's swallowed, becomes free methyl alcohol, methanol, wood alcohol, which is a poison, a real poison. It really began with a patient. I had a patient whom I had treated for a number of years for a recurrent depression. 
she came into the hospital in what we call a manic state. That is, she was very, very speeded up, euphoric, on top of the world. I'd never seen her manic before, never looked upon her as bipolar. And within a day or two of her admission to the hospital, she had a sudden grand mal seizure, epileptic-like seizure. This is in a woman who had no history of seizure disorder. I really could not explain either the sudden onset of mania in somebody who'd been on antidepressants for years, usually in a bipolar patient, that is a manic depressive patient. An antidepressant will trigger a manic episode. She'd been on, ma on uh, antidepressants for a long time, no manic episode. Suddenly was manic and then had a grand mal seizure. Clinically, I could not explain that. So we essentially did some detective work looking at what was different in this woman's life. And the only thing we could find was that she had made a decision to lose some weight. So she switched from iced tea sweetened with sugar to uh, iced tea sweetened with aspartame. And she was drinking fairly large amounts of it. Now, you could, you could speculate that perhaps the caffeine in the tea may have been a factor, but she had not changed the total quantity. She'd had this amount of iced tea for many years without manic episodes, without grand mal seizures. What was different was the aspartame. So I started looking at that, and it made sense that aspartame would lower the seizure threshold. That is, what we knew about the chemistry of aspartame at that point in time did point to the possibility that aspartame could, one, trigger a manic episode, and two, could lower the seizure threshold sufficiently for her to have a grand mal seizure. That was the beginning. Then I found other patients like that. I wrote about it. And that was in uh, 1985, really two years or so after the introduction of aspartame into the market. Uh, I realized that something was going awry, but I couldn't quite figure it out. And then after several years putting amalgamating this experience and patient input, it was very important that you listen to your patients because the great Dr. Osler said, listen to the patient. They're telling you what's wrong. I realized that the common denominator was the use of uh, aspartame products. And under various trade names, particularly NutraSweet, Equal, Crystallite, so forth. I was primarily using NutraSweet, lots of it, because I was a big coffee drinker. It was decaffeinated. I was taking care of myself. I mean, there was just all kinds of things that, you know, the diet sodas, the, you know, I used to eat jello all the time, or, you know, Cool Whip and gum. I used to, you know, eat chew gum constantly back then. Uh, Came home and decided I was going to be the good diabetic. I needed to be here for my child. Um, I was going to drink the diet drink like crazy. I drank crystallite tea. I'd switched from brewing my own tea to crystallite tea. And so for years, I went on thinking what a smart person I am drinking Diet Coke instead of regular Coke. And, and, and also, I carried it into other things as well, so that when I would sweeten my tea, I sweetened it with, uh, with equal. And so when the uh, low-cal Kool-Aid hit the market uh, in, I think it was April of 1983, I started using it. I would have a drink with a Diet Coke. During the day, I would drink Diet Coke or, co or coffee, decaffeinated, all day long. I was never without one or the other. I drove 10 states. 
I always had a premise of coffee with me, very liberally treated with NutraSweet. I started out for doing blood draws, and um, I, I did the blood draws. I like talking and everything, and so that was a good area for me to get into. I was always hyper and all that, and I would drink the diet sodas like crazy there because we had it at our disposal all the time. And so the further and further I got on, and then um, I did Armed Forces Emergency ser Services with the disaster we work with um, people overseas during war wartime. I grew up in a funeral home in one of the oldest funeral homes in the South. Um, I didn't meet my husband until I was like 35, 36. And um, we went on to have a child. And my weight just went way out of And in the meantime, I had lost an eye in 87. I didn't meet him until 98. And um, I was told in 92 I had diabetes. Well, I tried staying off the sweets and the Coca-Cola and, you know, drinking the diet drinks on and off. And uh, I was a briefing attorney for a federal district judge, John H. Wood. The U.S. courthouse in San Antonio is named after him. And uh, then after serving as his briefing attorney for two years, I was appointed by Bill Sessions as assistant U.S. attorney for the Western District of Texas and uh, served in that capacity for a little bit over four years. And during that time, I was the president of the Federal Bar Association and very active in uh, legal matters and things like that. Had I seen the chemical formula on this product, I would never have touched it. You know, the, the poisonous effect of methyl alcohol and, and its methyl esters are, are well known. And uh, within a day or two of my starting to drink it, not only did I feel the deterioration in my body where I couldn't swim anymore and I didn't have the balance that I had and I was short of breath from a heart failure type of problem. But my wife saw all this much more objectively than I did. And she was a nurse and she said, Jim, get off of this. This is killing you. It's destroying you. Well, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease back in 93 called lupus, SLE, systemic, which I had been dealing with. It was very severe to the point where I lost my job and eventually my insurance because over 40 doctors who saw me over a year's period kept doing one test after another and every test came back negative. I've had some of them since 1983. I can go back to as far as 1983 and possibly even before that, but I only remember doctor's offices and, and you know, the um, hospitalizations and things like that since 1983. Around, I'd say, January of 2002, I started getting dizzy. I would go to the dryer to go take clothes out and fall down and not know why. The reason I found out I had a brain tumor is I lost my voice during pollen season of the year 2000, or 98, excuse me. And um, in 98, my voice never came back from the pollen hoarseness. It happened to me every year. So I went to a specialist at a local hospital here in Atlanta, and I said, all my friend's voices have come back. Mine's gotten worse. And he went down my throat, and he said, well, your left vocal cord is completely atrophied, and it's been my experience when I see a condition like this that there's a brain tumor someplace that causes that. Also, the vision, um, having spots 
and I and I couldn't see. And I, I I literally I stopped driving because I did not feel comfortable behind the wheel. My endocrinologist told me that I have most likely have multiple sclerosis. So he sent me to a neurologist. The neurologist told me that yes, I do have a multiple sclerosis. I had been having double vision, and my doctor scheduled me to have an MRI. And uh, we were waiting on the results, and I'll never forget it. It was, oh, maybe a week or two before Christmas. And uh, the doctor called, and I, I was just ready to hear, well, you know, we couldn't find anything. Well, instead, he said, you have a brain tumor, and it's a rather large brain tumor. And within a couple of days, I had gone from being a two-mile-a-day swimmer to having such a toxic cardiomyopathy that I could hardly climb the stairs to my apartment. Over the next six weeks, I went through all of the personal hells of methyl alcohol poisoning and the neurotransmitter depletion uh, from the aspartame's phenylalanine content, and eventually ended up with a picture of Lou Gehrig disease. I still have a lot of pain, but she said, well, you'll live with pain. It's part of, even though it's in remission, you're going to have pain. So I went to Tampa. Finally found a rheumatologist that she had referred me to, and oddly enough, he did the same blood test and said, you never had lupus, you have advanced fibromyalgia. <laughs> I said, I just give up. So he said, well, I just don't think you ever had lupus, but for whatever reason, you're able to do what you're doing because of what she gave you, so let's just go ahead and treat you as if you're in remission, but I'm going to treat you for, for fibromyalgia. But detail is very, very important. You have to get spellings name, birth dates name, everything. And with me being diagnosed with the neural hearing loss, which has gotten significantly worse, within I've been um, checked the last three years every six months, and it's gotten gotten a lot worse. And now I'm taking, I have the two hearing aids that I have to have. I took the ice pops out thing, and they were just the regular ones that I've been eating earlier. And my mother-in-law had taken my little one over to her house. So my husband and I were in movies, and we were going to have a date night, you know, just a night out, you know, night to ourselves. And I pulled out the pops and went on to eat the four, three, four of the pops, the aspartame pops. Well, this was on a Saturday night. By 4 o'clock Sunday morning, I was digging holes in my hands from the itching. I was bleeding. I looked like something out of a Vietnam camp from the bleeding. The doctor explained that one of the very probable side results would be a loss of short-term memory. Well, uh, I later learned that it had done a little bit more than that with me uh, and that it ruined my legal career. About then I tumbled, but only subconsciously. I said, well, you know, I, I'm just going to get off this artificial sweetener, and I, I didn't really even uh, consciously suspect NutraSweet, but when I got off it, then I started recovering. My doctors will not come out and absolutely put down in writing that this is caused by aspartame. They will not do it. But they'll give me an aside like this, thank God you're off NutraSweet. That's what they'll say. But they won't put it in my records. We were doing a shelter, and I was there, and I had the, the um, water, and that's all I did was drink the water. And it was like each bottle I drank, the worse I got. And I had nothing else um, to eat or anything. There was nothing, you know, nothing else that I was ingesting at all. 
So that was actually a blessing because I was able to narrow it down. There must be, this must be it. Um, and I went around and I had the bottle and I was asking everybody, what's in this bottle? What is aspartame? And, you know, everybody said they had no idea. Um, and then that one lady had uh, said, she goes, well, and she goes, I've heard of it, she said. And then something kept flashing my mind, and I remembered seeing the name somewhere. And I, I, like I said, I read all the time in magazines and all that. I don't know if it was in Time or Newsweek or something, but I remember seeing an article, and for some reason I keep saying that name. So uh, after I had uh, finished the shelter, I went and I was driving down the road in my library. I volunteer at the library also. And so I stopped in there to say hello and all that and see how everything was going. And they actually had power there. And I went in. I pulled it up on a computer. At that time, I didn't have a computer. And I'd never searched anything in my life. I had no clue. I had email, and that's about it. Um, and I pulled up aspartame. And I just, my eyes lit up. I started crying. I was, all those symptoms are 92 symptoms. I think I think I counted 79 of those symptoms. I've been in the hospital or or to the doctors in complaints over 50 times for each one of them, well over. Turns out his wife was told she had lupus. She doesn't. They were getting ready to tell her she had multiple sclerosis, and she didn't. Her husband went home and jumped all over her and made her stop drinking the diet drink, and all of a sudden things got a lot better for her. Yep. That's basically how it happened with me, Corey. I put the diet drink down, and I didn't touch it again. This was on a Friday. I think it's around the 19th of September. Last year? Yeah. And my husband looked at me, and he says, the next day, within 24 hours, he says, baby, you're not smart like you were. You're not falling out like you were either. And over time, it got better and got better and got better. Because I was such a high user of aspartame through primarily Diet Cokes and Equal, and uh, those, are, those are the primary ways, combined with the mountain of evidence and and other testimonials of people who have have had uh, terrible symptoms of every type of malady that you can imagine. And when they're removed from the aspartame, the symptoms go away. That's what you call strong, if not direct evidence, very strong circumstantial evidence. Judge Wood, the judge I used to work for, the federal judge, uh, in his charge to the jury, when he would give a definition of circumstantial evidence, he would say, If, as you go to bed at night, there's no snow on the ground, and you wake up in the morning and there's snow on the ground, you may reasonably assume that during the course of the night, it snowed. That is an example of strong circumstantial evidence. You didn't see it snow. You can't (laughs) scientifically prove that the snow fell from the sky, but it wasn't there at night, and in the morning it was. Therefore, you may conclude circumstantially that it snowed during the course of the night. And I would say that the evidence of, of, of my brain tumors being caused by aspartame are, are that strong to me. And then they rechallenge themselves knowingly or inadvertently. They serve something in a neighbor's house that they didn't realize contained an aspartame product. And these set of symptoms and problems promptly recur within hours or a day or two, sometimes within minutes. And it does so repeatedly. 
then that is more than anecdotal. Uh, that is similar like the cock postulates for infection. Uh, you isolate the cause, and then you inject it in the animal, and you reproduce the problem. And many of these individuals who had been aspartame reactors have tested themselves five, 10, 20 times, every time getting the same response. And then they realized that this was a legitimate cause and effect relationship. My, my personal experience, from my own experience, and with patients, is that when somebody who's been poisoned by this goes off it, they very quickly notice an improvement. And they almost equally quickly find out that it isn't over yet. You know, they've got a lot of problems to deal with. And certainly, uh, because I had to suffer with this and had patient groups that had to suffer with it, and then I would consult with doctors around the nation who were pretty much expert in, in the field of environmental ecology, I developed some therapeutic outlooks that people can have to, uh, to help themselves. But the, the first thing you've got to learn is to listen to your body. If, if something's going wrong, try and backtrack to what you had or what you're breathing in your environment or what's going on around you. But the fact is this thing has been carefully studied, repeatedly studied, extensively studied, so that, as I said before, the FDA concluded it's one of the most thoroughly tested food additives they've ever seen. And the conclusion is that it's safe. They had made the claim years ago that they would help and support any legitimate researcher, that they would supply aspartame and be helpful in any research. I had published my anecdotal studies, and I had uh, written a chapter in Richard Wortman's book, so I, I think the industry knew of my stance already. But then, in the mid-90s, I wrote to the company stating that we wanted to do a double-blind study, because my earlier work had indeed been, quote, anecdotal. And I pointed out that they had made the claim that they would supply aspartame to any legitimate researcher. At that point, I was a professor at near UConn, Northeastern Ohio University's College of Medicine. I think I would qualify as a legitimate researcher. The company, uh, I sent the protocol for the study to the company. And they responded that this was unnecessary research and would not supply us aspartame. I offered to buy the aspartame. They refused. They put up roadblocks. They made it very difficult for us to purchase aspartame. We had to go around them. We finally did get USP-grade aspartame from Schweitzer, from a private firm. But the point is that the NutraSweet company made it very, very difficult, didn't follow through on their promise to supply aspartame to any legitimate researcher, said this was unnecessary, shouldn't be done, needn't be done, and they tried to block it. The G.D. Searle Company, in the quest to get approval for their product, uh, aspartame, they uh, conducted a study on animals in which they fed some animals, like low-dose, medium-dose, high-dose of the uh, product, and then they used control animals that supposedly did not get any of the product. Uh, when they submitted this to the FDA and the FDA, FDA looked at it, there was some question about the study. Well, one of the scientists and neuroscientists looked at some of this and uh, he saw a lot of red flags. He said there's some real questions here about tumors being caused by this product, particularly brain tumors. Uh, so they uh, ordered a study to be done by the Bureau of Foods 
Kessler was in charge of this uh, group to, to look through this, the research that had been done by G.D. Searle, and that's what the Bressler reported about. And this is the uh, report here. And basically what it shows is that either a lot of purposeful shenanigans was carried on to get this product approved, or, as he states it, it was the world's worst research. They found that uh, what they did is the animals that died after being fed NutraSweet, they didn't autopsy the animals right away. Uh, some of them were not autopsied more than a year afterwards. And of course the tissues broke down and, and liquefied and so they couldn't do proper studies on them, but they reported it as if they had. And they reported these as normal. Uh, they found that they were taking tumors and cutting them out and throwing them away and saying the animal was normal. Uh, they had animal tissues that had obvious tumors in it that were reported normal. They had, uh, in one of the cases here that's reported, a, a lymph node that was enlarged. And uh, this G.D. Serral pathologist reported it as a normal lymph node. When the scientists from the Bureau of Foods looked at it, uh, they say it was an obvious lymphosarcoma, a highly malignant tumor. Uh, the uh, notations about the testicular atrophy were not noted. Uh, there were just numerous, numerous things in this, uh, this report that showed that, uh, in my estimation, there was an effort to cover up what was being found so that they could get approval. There were so many things wrong with the submitted data from G.D. Searle originally. Um, they had a monkey study. And in this monkey study, they were fed aspartame. And they were fed aspartame with milk. The milk, as you know, normally slows down the absorption of certain chemicals when you, when you drink milk. If you take aspirin in milk, it'll take much longer for the aspirin to go to work. Well, even though the monkeys were drinking aspartame and milk, out of the seven monkeys they had, I think one or two died and four or five had grand mal seizures. Now, these test results were not satisfactory to G.D. Searle. Uh, they weren't going to be able to show these to the FDA saying, hey, look, aspartame, even with milk, uh, caused monkeys to have grand mal seizures. When we did our double-blind study here at this hospital, we had really a tragic situation which occurred, which I attributed directly to the aspartame. We needed volunteers. We looked at both patients, that is, people who had a history of mood disorder, and we needed some controls, that is, people without a history of mood disorder. One of the people that I used in the study was uh, the administrator for our psychiatric unit. who was a PhD psychologist. And several days into this study, he had an emergency. He had an ophthalmologic emergency. That is, he had sudden uh, bleeding, in his eye and a detachment of his retina. He had to be rushed to Cleveland for emergency surgery. His eye could not be saved. He lost the vision in one eye. At the same time, we had another participant in the study, a nurse, who also had an episode of intraocular bleeding, that is bleeding within her eye. So we had two people who, during the course of the study, had eye emergencies. The bottom line was, oh, oh, here is the most tested product, additive in history, an additive. 
Now, additive's important because aspartame was uh, approved as a grass, G-R-A-S, I mean, it's generally recognized as safe product. In which case, unlike drugs, it, uh, if people have reactions to it, it does not have to be reported to the FDA. And what I found was really quite frightening, and that was that, yes, there were many, many studies in the literature which did attest to aspartame safety, but they were essentially all funded by the industry, either the NutraSweet industry or the diet soft drink industry. These are the individuals who sponsored, paid for the studies. There were independent studies, but virtually all of the independent studies, that is, studies which were not funded by the industry, virtually all of them did identify one type of problem or another with aspartame. And so they got the test results they wanted by manipulating the method. This is not to say that aspartame was safe or that aspartame does not induce seizures, because it does. Um, it's just to show you that the scientific data nowadays is unreliable. So how you design the study is going to have an impact on the results. And I think that many of the industry-sponsored studies were set up in such a way that the results could be predicted ahead of time and would be supportive of the safety of the product. There is no evidence at the present time that I'm aware of that aspartame in large amounts has a significant effect on brain chemistry. what exactly an excitotoxin is? Well, an excitotoxin, uh, basically what it does, it's a normal transmitter in the brain. These are chemicals that allow brain cells to communicate. Um, but if it's in even a minute over-concentration in the brain, it causes the brain cells to become extremely excited. And they become so excited, they'll very quickly burn themselves out and die. That was one of the first observations by Dr. Olney, and he gave it the name excitotoxin. When was the first uh, time that you heard about aspartame? Was it during that investigation with the FDA? Yes, it was. I, uh, it was in 1970, and it was an interesting story. I was called by Dr. John Olney from Washington University, who I had been working with on MSG and baby food. We had started a, an, an examination of MSG and baby food that led to the baby food industry taking MSG out of baby food. And it was done by the Senate Nutrition Committee. I was the special counsel to the Senate the Select Committee on Nutrition, and they, we ran hearings on food. And one of the things we talked about was uh, MSG in baby food because it caused holes in the brains of rats that were being tested by Dr. Olney. And uh, it was Dr. Olney's hypothesis that a substantial amount of mental retardation, 95% of which is of unknown origin, that a substantial portion of that came from environmental insults, chemicals in the environment, food, air, water, and so forth. And he was testing them and one of them was MSG, and it caused these holes in the brains of mice in his system, and ultimately that led to having MSG taken out of baby food. 
he called me to say that he'd just done a study on aspartic acid, one of the primary components of NutraSweet, and it was doing the same thing as MSG. And that caused him to be quite concerned about the fact that that uh, Cyril Drug Company at the time was planning to use this as a sweetener. But now, after years of retesting this, most authorities agree there's no question that feeding MSG to animals produces this brain damage. It's not questioned any longer. It's a fact. Uh, there's even good studies that show that if you feed the pregnant animals the MSG, their offspring has impaired brain function. And when you measure the neurochemical uh, analysis of the brain of the animal, it's impaired all the way through the animal's youth up until adulthood, and they never quite recover from it. In one of the conferences which I addressed for the FDA a few years back, uh, there was a study uh, with um, MSG, monosodium glutamate, which is another excited toxins, it's a neurotoxin problem. And I, we could not understand why with the controls had almost the same reaction, number of reactions as the people have given it. But it turned out that one of the presumably inert components in these capsules of products with, M with MSG contained aspartame. So it really was there was something that the even the investigators did not realize was a component of the presumed placebo. The central mechanism that actually produces the destruction and damage to the brain is excitotoxicity. That's pretty well agreed upon now. The frightening thing is that we're adding tons of these excitotoxins to our food, either in the form of MSG or part of the aspartame molecule. Uh, which is aspartic acid, which is an excitotoxin. Can, can we talk about the blood-brain barrier and, and how it breaks down? Um, like hypoglycemia can be an example of that, and and, and how um, excitotoxins can pass through that on occasion. Yeah, the blood-brain barrier is one of the big defenses that the industry always gives. They say, well, these things can't get through the blood-brain barrier. Uh, I did rather extensive research in this area, and what I discovered was that there are numerous conditions that we're all subjected to that cause a breakdown of the normal blood-brain barrier. Uh, number one is aging. As we age, our blood-brain barrier begins to deteriorate. It becomes porous, so that anything we eat will pass through the blood into the brain. Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, all of these diseases associated with the breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. Strokes, even silent strokes, produce a breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. Exposure to certain uh, pesticides, herbicides, will break down the blood-brain barrier. Uh, hypoglycemia will break it down. Uh, certain drugs will cause it to break down. Uh, free radical generation will cause it to break down. Well, we know m many of the diseases are caused by free radicals, like diabetes. You can have very high free, level, uh, uh, free radical levels. Extreme exercise, you produce a lot of free radicals. All of this breaks down the blood-brain barrier. Multiple sclerosis, autoimmune diseases, lupus, all these things are associated with the breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. So we know there are millions and millions of people out there who have, at one time or another, a very porous blood-brain barrier. So when they drink a diet cola or they eat MSG, it passes right into their brain very easily. The other thing that we discovered was that even if you had a completely normal, intact blood-brain barrier, if you expose that person to a high-dose 
of these excitotoxins over a prolonged period of time, it will seep past the barrier into the brain. The same building blocks that are found in all of the proteins that we eat, whether they be bananas or meat or peanuts or what, what have you, they are found in NutraSweet. Now, the amino acids are contained in food, but if you have protein, uh, meat, fish, and so forth, there may be 4% phenylalanine in, in the food, but not 50%. And we simply, biologically, don't know how to still, how to react to this, this flooding of these enormous amounts of amino acids in the body, especially uh, the phenylalanine, which crosses the blood-brain barrier. It's meant to protect against, uh, biologically, against poisons and so forth. It's also what's called a dipeptide. That is, it is two amino acids stuck together. One of those amino acids is something called phenylalanine. Phenylalanine is the building block for another important neurotransmitter called norepinephrine. So when you take in aspartame, you'll increase the availability of one and you'll decrease the availability of the other, you'll change ratios. And when you do that, when you change ratios of norepinephrine and serotonin, you certainly affect brain function. And this can lead then to mood symptoms, to panic symptoms in some people. It'll affect seizure threshold, which is why I think I saw the seizure in this initial patient back in 1985 and why I saw a lot of seizure activity in people who were taking in a great deal of aspartame. They knew that this uh, product, aspartame, with time breaks down into a product called diketopeprazine. Uh, Dikeopeprazine chemically is closely related to a carcinogenic compound. It causes cancer in a lot of animals that they're exposed to it, and humans. Uh, so they asked the GD Serial Company to do a separate study with uh, the Dikeopeprazine. Well, when they looked at this study, they found some shenanigans as well. And one of the things is when you mix up the Dikeopeprazine with the animal's food, you have to homogenize it so that it's evenly distributed and the animal can't see it and avoid it. Uh, well, I've seen pictures of the feed, and they left it in big clumps so the rats were eating around it, not actually eating the dicatopeprazine. There was also evidence that they were giving the dicatopeprazine uh, to the control animals. And, of course, this came out because in the original study, they found a 47-fold increase in brain tumors. In their dicatopeprazine repeat study, they said, oh, well, look, the control animals and the, and the uh, aspartame-fed animals have the same instance of brain tumors. Well, when the neuropathologist looked at it, they said, well, that's kind of strange because now your control animals have uh, a very high instance of brain tumors that's not naturally found in these mice. And then when they looked at the feed, they found out there were some mix-ups in the feed so that the dicutopeprazine was being fed to the control animals. Um, these are the sort of things that's in the Bressler report that the uh, makers of NutraSweet would not like the public to know about because it's very frightening. Uh, you know, when the pathologist, uh, Dr. Adrian Gross, looked at the, the material as well, a uh, very well-regarded pathologist, and he looked at it, and he was absolutely shocked. He said it's just an enormous increase in tumors. 
uh, particularly the brain tumors. And of course, that's exactly what we're seeing now is this uh, tremendous increase in brain tumors in this country, which is completely unexplained uh, by the neurological profession. a methyl group which is found in all fruits and vegetables. Everything that we eat has methyl groups. When the body metabolizes, when it, when it breaks down aspartame, you wind up with a small amount of methanol, which is wood alcohol. That in turn is broken down into formaldehyde, which the body cannot get rid of, the body stores. Now the industry has made a big deal about uh, supposedly the, the fact not really a fact, but the, what they claim is that when you take in fruit, you take in more methanol. They don't add the fact that in nature, the methanol in fruit is bound to something called pectin. Humans lack the enzyme to split the methanol off from pectin, so it goes through the body without doing any damage whatsoever. The body doesn't get exposed to the methanol because it's bound to pectin. So even though there's more of it, it's totally harmless in fruit. But in, with aspartame, you have the pure, unadulterated, free methanol and then formaldehyde. It's a small amount, but the body can't get rid of it. It's a cumulative phenomenon. So we have very, very toxic products. Methyl alcohol is just deadly and probably provides most of the, of the poisoning attributed to ethyl alcohol and alcoholics. It, it, is, it is the deadly one. Aside from the pectin story, in fruit, in nature, you also are taking in equal amounts of ethanol. You get both methanol and ethanol, and so they counteract each other. And so there's essentially no impact. You're not poisoning yourself when you take in fruit. I believe you're poisoning yourself when you take in aspartame. What's, what's the difference between methyl and ethyl alcohol? Okay, it's a difference of one carbon atom. Ethyl alcohol has one carbon atom. Ethyl alcohol has two carbon atoms. The... Uh, Human metabolism is geared to using carbon atoms in groups of two or three or more. Uh, when you get down to one, methyl alcohol, wood alcohol, has obligatory metabolism to formaldehyde. Formaldehyde, which is embalming fluid, is 5,000 times as potent a poison as is sipping alcohol. The FDA, which is the watchdog of American safety that we have empowered to protect the American public against food additives and drugs, has repeatedly reviewed all of the data that has been forthcoming from hundreds of studies about aspartame. Back in 1965, according to G.D. Searle, one of their researchers was working on an ulcer drug when he happened to get some of the substance on his finger and, instinctively, he licked it, noticing its sweet taste. One of the first tests conducted on aspartame was a 52-week study of monkeys to determine the effects of aspartame on primates. Seven monkeys were fed aspartame with milk. Five of those monkeys had grand mal seizures, and one died. Monkeys have a, more of a reaction to ethanol, regular alcohol like vodka or scotch. They have a real high resistance to methanol and 
even though they were fed aspartame with milk, they still came down with seizures and, and, and one died of, I guess, cardiac arrest from overstimulated nervous system. Um, Searle went back and got another physician, a, a fellow named Dr. Wellington, and this guy sat down and redesigned the monkey study. In that same year, Dr. John Olney found that oral intake of aspartic acid could cause brain tumors in mice. We had this situation where the company uh, initially seemed to be responsive to the concerns, and uh, they actually sent um, a team of researchers to Dr. Olney's laboratory, and uh, they recreated the studies. The serial, the serial investigators recreated the studies that uh, showed these, this brain damage in animals. And um, they went back to Cyril, and uh, we waited to hear what Cyril was going to do about this. And the next thing we knew, uh, I would say that they probably went to Dr. Olney's lab mid-71. Mid-73, they applied to uh, the FDA for a food additive petition to use NutraSweet as a sweetener. So I called the FDA, and I said, this doesn't, this doesn't make any sense. Dr. Olney uh, was asked by G.D. Searle to conduct a study because there were some concerns. And it's interesting to note that these concerns came up before a lot of the major testing into the toxicity of aspartame became apparent. But my thinking as an FDA investigator is that G.D. Searle already knew that going into this. Ultimately, FDA, using its good offices, interestingly enough, a major person there, created a meeting between me, uh, uh, Cyril and General Foods, which was going to be one of the main customers. And we met. And uh, I said I didn't think that this would ever reach the market. And they said, well, they were sure it was going to be approved. And I thought that we were on 180 degrees opposite sides. It turned out that it was approved, but FDA asked them not to market it. And they held it up so that there could be hearings and so forth. In 1974, the FDA approved the limited use of aspartame. Do you know why they were sure it was going to be approved? You said that they they said that it was sure that they. It was well, see, see, when I said I don't think it's going to read the reach the market, I was being very particular, but I didn't believe it was going to be approved because the evidence didn't show. They said it was. Now, now, one uh, very strange fact in all of that is that I knew that they had the brain damage study from Olney's lab that their own people had done. And we talked about the various pieces of evidence that uh, were problems. And I finally said, what about the brain damage problem from the animals in Dr. Olney's laboratory that your own people have gone and looked at? And he said, we don't think those are going to be a problem. Well, it turned out they weren't a problem because they didn't give them to the FDA. So, so here they had in their own files a study that raised very serious questions that they did not give to the FDA. That's a violation of law. G.D. Searle did not inform the FDA of this study until after aspartame's approval. This approval came despite the fact that FDA scientists found serious deficiencies in all tests related to genetic damage. And so all these concerns were all rolling around inside FDA, and they were trying to organize them into a policy. And every time they would organize them into a policy at the bench and science level, and they would go up one level to the, where the policy people were, the policy people would overrule them. A month later, Olney and Turner filed a formal objection, stating that they believed aspartame could cause brain damage. 
But anyway, we, we filed our petition. Dr. Only filed one, and I filed one attacking um, the approval. And the FDA said, right, there are some factual, uh, informa some factual information we should look into. We'll have a public hearing. Only because some of the investigators working for the Food and Drug Administration, looking at this data, knew that the data did not contain adequate safety information about aspartame. In 1975, due to serious questions over the quality and validity of G.D. Searles' testing of aspartame and other pharmaceuticals, the FDA formed a special task force to examine 11 of the pivotal studies on aspartame. Pivotal studies are those upon which the FDA bases approval or disapproval. Of the 113 studies, done on aspartame submitted to the FDA by Searle, 90 were conducted in the early to mid-1970s. Every test the FDA called pivotal was part of this 90. In March of 1976, the FDA completed their 500-page report after finishing their investigation. The um, report by the FDA uh, team that inspected it is the most devastating report about research that has probably ever been written about a specific company. And uh, that led to a uh, series of hearings in Congress and came up with a $12 million appropriation to FDA to enforce uh, uh, good laboratory practices. But what happened is there's a policy resolution, but NutraSuite and, uh, and Cyril got bypassed in the sense that they took this all over here and said, look at this terrible thing that's going on. There were a couple others that were going on at the same time. We've got to do something, and they did something. What they did was going forward, you have to meet these requirements. They didn't do anything about going backwards and saying, look, the stuff you're putting, stuff you came through here is uh, killing people. Now, the reason they didn't do that at the time, because it happened in, 50, uh, in 75 and 76, is that it was the assumption of everyone in the process that the FDA was going to handle it. So FDA, one of the things FDA did that was so uh, striking and remarkable is that they, uh, knowing that they had this terrible situation on their hands, hired a, uh, a uh, group of pathologists. It's a pathology research group. FDA hired them to review the serial studies, but had serial pay for it. So the result was, here's a company which makes its money by being hired and paid for to do studies. Well, why would it do a study that was going to be critical of NutraSuite? In 1977, the FDA chief counsel, Richard Merrill, recommended to U.S. Attorney Samuel Skinner that a grand jury be set up to investigate G.D. Searle. Well, FDA did attempt to do something, and it wasn't the political part of the FDA. These were the people that really were trying to work and do well. Um, one of the counsel's lawyers for the Food and Drug Administration contacted the U.S. attorney in Chicago and to bring an indictment against G.D. Searle for fraud, for uh, deletion of records, uh, manipulation of records, um, the falsification of records, and a number of other things on the testing that they did on aspartame and several other products as well. Suddenly, U.S. Attorney Samuel Skinner began preliminary employment discussions with G.D. Searle's law firm, Sidley & Austin. The U.S. Justice Department urged Attorney Samuel Skinner to proceed with the grand jury, pointing out that the statute of limitations on prosecution would soon run out. Samuel Skinner withdrew from the G.D. Searle case, and Assistant U.S. Attorney William Conlon was assigned to the grand jury investigation. Shortly afterwards, Samuel Skinner left his job to work for G.D. Searle's law firm. 
The assistant he left behind let the statute of limitations run out on the aspartame charges. This assistant, William Conlon, was hired 15 months later by G.D. Searle's law firm, Sidley and Austin. Uh, the common denominator for all of this, unfortunately, is money. And the amount of money that was splashed around um, induced people to drop the lawsuit against G.D. Searle and, and come work for the very firm that they were going to um, try for illegal activity. And that's what happened with the U.S. attorney. That's what happened with, with several people working for the Food and Drug Administration at that time. If they passed aspartame, literally, they were promised great jobs when they finished with FDA. Uh, and it was interesting, the main guy that made the decisions uh, that overruled them uh, in the Bureau of Foods went on to work for the uh, Soft Drink Association. And actually, seven of the key people that made decisions that kept NutraSweet moving through the process ended up working for one or another NutraSweet using industry. That's kind of an interesting side effect to the whole thing. I like to do well at things. It, it's important to me that if you're given an assignment that you try to do it the best you can. I'm afraid that some people confuse that with some sort of uh, single-mindedness on my part. Uh, Donald Rumsfeld uh, went into the company after he left Washington, after Ford lost, and uh, that would be uh, in uh, 1977 is in business and uh, he was the congressman from there and then he went to the White House where he was White House Chief of Staff and then he became the Secretary of Defense and he's involved in a whole group of people around Chicago that uh, they're involved in a whole range of things national security being one of them he was also a part of the Rand Corporation one of the major defense think tanks he's a very he's a very um, uh, he's a very uh, uh, bright guy like in the best and the brightest you know the kind of people that brought us no. These are people who believe that thinking is the primary way that you get through life. Having values, feelings, and so forth, they denigrate. So he took over this company, and it was, in, it was going down the tubes completely. It had FDA investigations. It had, um, it had uh, uh, grand jury investigations. It was losing money. Its stock was down. A person was hired to come in and explain why the FDA was so down on them and went through all of their records and said, you guys haven't got a chance. This company is, is a mess, a total mess. And he went in with a full team of politicians. He went in with himself, a politician. Uh, he brought his special assistant who was uh, uh, a, a Republican Party operative, worked with the Republican National Committee, brought in a press guy from there, brought in lawyers, and they took on the issue of this company as a political issue. And um, one of the first things that he, not first, but somewhere in that first year, it was late in the year, he called me and said, let's have a meeting. So I went and I met with him. We flew into the Madison Hotel and we met, with, and, we met and we talked. And my point was that the uh, struggle that was going on around NutraSuite was a scientific struggle. We needed to know the scientific answers. And this was before the public court of inquiry had ruled. We needed to know the answers. So why don't we, the people who were raising all the questions about NutraSuite, and the company together create a, um, a set of protocols that we would agree address the serious questions that needed to be looked at to decide whether or not it should be, be marketed. So we had this meeting. And, uh, we, and uh, for about six months, his staff and I and, and, and our group negotiated out how we could proceed on this. His own scientists didn't want to do it. 
For example, at the, at the time that uh, they put their uh, evidence into FDA in, 19, um, in 1973, there were no requirements at FDA to examine effects on the brain from food additives, no requirements whatsoever. So there never was a study done to look at whether or not this affected the brain in, uh, in a neurological sense. The cancer studies were incidental. Those were cancer studies, but these were not brain studies. The cancer studies turned up brain tumors, but they didn't look, for example, at these holes in the brain or mental retardation or uh, lowering the ability of people to think or causing dizziness or blindness or any of those things. None of that was looked at. And uh, we were proposing that we design some studies to look at it. And uh, that was the direction I thought we should go. And I should say that at that point, I was involved with a group of people from uh, the food industry. We had created something called the Food Safety Council. We had 35 major corporations, and it had a board that was half corporate people and half uh, consumer advocates, uh, academic people, environmentalists, and so forth, to look at the standards for food safety. And we had written a whole series of standards for food safety. Basically, what I was saying to Rumsfeld is, why don't you bring your company into the same framework that all these other companies have agreed to be a part of? And, um, and uh, we had a very good, very full and frank exchange. His scientists kept jumping up and running around the room and saying, there's no problem, there's no problem, there's no problem. Ultimately, he made the decision not to find out what the facts were, but to move forward on the limited record that they had before them. And I believe it was a decision that was made that said, we can, we can accomplish our ends better legally and politically than we can by actually doing the science to determine the outcome of the questions that are being asked. And in my mind, that demonstrated that he was an individual not interested in facts, not interested in the truth, not interested in finding out what the fundamental realities are, but much, much more interested in setting a goal and then, and then by will and force pulling all the resources that he could possibly pull together to achieve that goal, i.e., get NutraSuite on the market and sold. And so Donald Rumsfeld had been all these, in the, all these meetings and known um, all of these potentially harm, very harmful effects of this substance that he then went on and continued to market? Well, I, I, I can't say what Donald Rumsfeld knew or didn't know. Uh, he's not a scientist. He's not very interested in science, from what I can tell. More or less, uh, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a fixer. He's, a, he's, a, uh, he's a, um, an operative. He, he, uh, you assign him a job, and he goes and he does it. Uh, now, I'm, I'm sure that as he gets up into the level of defense department, he, he sort of makes up his own jobs and says, I'm going to do these things. But, the, but facts are not all that important to how he proceeds because he's so confident that he knows what the outcome should be that he will look across, at least in the way he did a NutraSuite, he looked across the horizon to find all those facts that would support his position and then minimized or denigrated all the facts that didn't support his position. In 1980, the Public Board of Inquiry voted unanimously to reject the use of aspartame until additional studies could be done on aspartame's potential to cause brain tumors. The product was, uh, was uh, said not to be, it was ruled by law, it was said you cannot market this product. And then they had to go and do uh, political triage and get in there and manipulate the process. So, I mean, the, the manipulation was so powerful that uh, the first, one of the first things that Ronald Reagan did when he became president was suspend the authority of the FDA commissioner to take any actions. So he was sworn in in whatever day in January, and the next day he issued a, a, an executive order eliminating the FDA commissioner's authority to take actions. Uh, there was obviously a fear on the part of somebody that the commissioner was going to do something about NutraSuite or something else that would create 
difficulty because it took them a while to get a new commissioner. It took them over, a little over a month to get a new commissioner, get the old one out and the new one in. And in that month, the old commissioner was prevented from taking any actions by an executive order. And that, that, that takes a high level of political clout to do that. But that's political triage on a situation that had gone sour uh, uh, because Rumsfeld had made the decision to um, uh, just power his way through and, and ignore getting the facts. In 1981, the day after Ronald Reagan took office as U.S. President, J.D. Searle reapplied for the approval of aspartame. Several new studies were submitted along with their application. Three of the five FDA scientists responsible for reviewing brain tumor issues advised against the approval of aspartame. Under the watch of the new FDA commissioner, Arthur Hull Hayes, the panel lawyer assigned a new panel member to eventually achieve a 3-3 split over aspartame. On July 18, 1981, Arthur Hull Hayes overruled the Public Board of Inquiry to approve aspartame for use in dry foods. Furthermore, the FDA impaneled its own panel to review the Public Board of Inquiry. Three of those people were assigned, review the cancer part of the Public Board of Inquiry, the part that said you can't market it. Those three scientists, every single one of them said, we agree with the Public Board of Inquiry. These are three FDA senior scientists. We agree with the Public Board of Inquiry. They met with the commissioner the night before he announced that he was going to approve NutraSweet and begged him not to approve NutraSweet. Animals just ordinarily do not get brain tumors. And this should have been enough to have invoked the so-called Delaney Amendment to the 1958 Food and Drug Act. It says that if something causes tumors or cancer in experimental animals, you should not approve it for human use. In 1983, the FDA approved the use of aspartame in carbonated beverages. Under charges of improprieties, Arthur Hull Hayes left the FDA and was hired as a consultant for $1,000 a day by G.D. Searle's public relations firm. NutraSweet or aspartame is the most studied food ingredient ever approved by the FDA, and not just by the FDA, but by more than 70 regulatory bodies around the world. In order to rubber stamp it around the world, you've got to get it approved in another country. Okay, so let's take Europe. If England were to find out that they wanted them indicted for fraud, if they ever read these reports by the CDC or uh, the FDA Board of Inquiry saying it's not safe or found out, you know, about the, that they wanted them indicted, naturally they're not going to approve it. So what they did was uh, Searle, the manufacturer, made a business deal with the professor Paul Turner, who was in the regulatory agency in England, and he approved it without anybody knowing it. Parliament had a big blowout about it, and the story was in The Guardian. I have a copy of it. But they did not rescind the order. There were no studies done in the U.K., and it was uh, rubber-stamped. Then, around the world, they could say, well, it was approved in the United States, it was approved in Europe, and then it was approved, you know, in other places. Uh, they used, to, They tried to get it approved in Canada, and they couldn't do it. But once they got it approved in Europe, they began to rubber-stamp it around the world. The... American Dietetic Association, the American Diabetes Association, the American Medical Association, goes all the way down the line. And if you were to see and read 
their journals and publications and see who the sponsors were and the people who were paying a great deal for advertising therein, it would make a little bit more sense. But but the Center for Disease Control didn't investigation and said it was safe. No, the Center for Disease uh, never said it was safe either. What they did, here is the Center for Disease Control investigation. And uh, it's a 146-page document. What it goes into, what was happening to the people, goes into cardiac arrest, it goes into seizures, it goes into liver problems, it goes into mood alteration, and it goes into death. And it ends up by saying that more neurological studies need to be done. Now here's what happened. If you go to the Center for Disease Control website, uh, you will see a summary, not this 146-page investigation, but a summary that contradicts this report, saying that it was just mild findings. And I told Dr. Satcher before he left the CDC and became Surgeon General, I said, if you don't take that phony summary off, I will put the whole 146-page investigation on web and let the world see what the Center for Disease Control did. And we do have it on www.dorway.com, like doorway with one O. You can read this entire investigation, and this is the original document. Betty Martini and her organization, Mission Possible, have served as a lighthouse for people who suspect their toxin to be aspartame and wish to learn more. For over 10 years, she has worked tirelessly to inform people of this issue, often challenged by the pharmaceutical and food industries. Mission Possible is the central hub for prevailing knowledge of aspartame. Betty Martini and Mission Possible contribute to Doorway.com, a website that is likely the most frequently cited Internet source on this issue. A substantial find in my investigation was Betty Martini. Her work is an act of charity, and her sources are credible. And, of course, as the case histories came in on the Internet, and they were just coming in so fast that one day I got 12,000 case histories of people suffering from aspartame and crashed my computer. So uh, four support groups have been set up on the Internet to take care of these people because finally they wondered. They'd been going from doctor to doctor. They read that, and uh, they realized why they had MS. They realized about lupus. They realized about diabetes. Many of them called just hysterical, crying, you know, could this be true, could this be true? But as they got off, their MS symptoms disappeared. People that were blind could see again. Now the current philosophy within the Food and Drug Administration is, let's go ahead and we'll approve this food additive or whatever is in here, and we'll let the people prove that it's dangerous. They were calling the uh, FDA. They were calling the hospitals, the doctors. They were calling the CDC. I got one email from the CDC. And they said, you know, people are calling over here. They're hysterical about this. I said, well, whose fault is it? You did the most damning investigation ever done. I said, and then you put this phony summary up there instead of, you know, you should be doing what I'm doing. You know, you are the Center for Disease Control, and we're having to alert the world, you know, because you people sold out. And then you, then you get up with this very terrible equation that says, well, if this thing only harms one in a million people, we'll consider it to be safe. Now, 
harms, they say kills. If it, if it kills only one in a million people, the FDA considers it to be safe. So what you have then by, that, by virtue of that is you're saying that as far as we're concerned, something that kills between 200 and 300 people a year, we consider safe. That doesn't work for the 200 or 300 people. And so if you're going to do that, you better have, a pro, better have a label somewhere that says safe means we'll kill no more than two or 300 people a year. And I, I, I want to pose that to people because I've had a conversation with some other federal regulators, and I said, you know, with all the technology we have today, with all the advances in medicine and science, people are getting sicker. Has, has anyone noticed that? Uh, people are, are buying more pharmaceutical drugs to, to cure the very things that these chemical companies started to begin with. So I'm thinking from the womb to the tomb, you're going to be paying money to these pharmaceutical companies, and they're going to be manipulating the politics so you get to consume all of their poisons, all of the toxins, fully untested. And we're going to see five or six years from now people coming down with new kinds of diseases, things that we never even heard of today. You know, you have to take some responsibility for what you're putting in your mouth. But in this case, they have no way of knowing. you got the FDA lying to them. they got the CDC, the professional organizations. They go to the doctors. The doctors can't help them because they've been lied to, too. Doctors only know what they're taught, and they only believe what they're allowed to believe. So I think it was the year 1917, but I could be wrong. Somewhere in that era, they developed the electrocardiogram. The year before... Indigestion was the number one cause of death in the United States. The year after the cardiogram was invented, uh, myocardial infarction was the number one cause of death in the United States. So a lot of doctors are still back on the Nutrisweet issue. They're, they're still way back in the era before anybody allowed them to know anything wrong with it. These things are prolonged effects. And, of course, if a physician sees it and they see a, a child with a seizure, uh, they're not going to connect it to the MSG or aspartame because they don't know about this research. They're not familiar with it. Uh, they'll just tell the mother, well, I don't see how that could be related, you know, something you drank when you were pregnant. We're about ready to meet Diane Fleming, who was convicted of murdering her husband by methanol poisoning. Her attorney neglected to mention that uh, he was a big her husband was a big consumer of aspartame products, and aspartame breaks down into methanol and could have uh, been the cause of his death rather than her. That's a possibility that was never brought out in court, and therefore she got 50 years in this prison. Um, we're about ready to meet her and hear her side of the story, so stay tuned. Um, describe your husband to me. Tell me what he was like. Well, he, was, he, kept, he kept himself a lot. I don't think a lot of people knew him real well. You know, he didn't want to socialize with people at work or anything. He was very driven at work. Like, he never missed work even the morning in question when he got up sick, and he's saying, oh, I feel terrible. But he went to work because that's what he did. We had a weight machine. We had stair climber. We had treadmill. And he read everything he could find about how to, the right way to do weights. And, you know, like you do sets instead of just doing it. You know, you do so many repetitions and stop for a minute and then do it again 
like three times, something like that. He was pretty much obsessed with building his body. He didn't want to be fat like his relatives. <laughs> he started reading about creatine and said that he wanted to try it. And he talked about it for a while beforehand. And apparently what it does is it pulls the muscle, but pulls water to the muscles to pump them up more. I was wondering exactly what it was. Yeah, that, you know, that doesn't sound like a good idea, messing with the fluid balances in your body, pulling water from one place, you know, putting it someplace else. But, uh, and I think it has something to do with the recovery um, time. And he wanted to try that. And uh, we picked up some Gatorade. He was trying to decide what to put it in because you could mix it in, they said water or fruit juice, but water probably wouldn't taste too good, and he didn't drink fruit juice. <laughs> so he said, well, maybe Gatorade. He thought he could tolerate that. So we got the 20-ounce the bottles, like a case. I guess it was 24. It's assorted flavors. You know, he kind of tasted, see how it tasted, and then set it in the fridge and went to the pool with our daughter and came back. Well, then he played basketball from about 4 until 7 with the guys, mostly some guys from church. And they would meet at the middle school. And came back and drank that. Even when he came back from playing ball, he wasn't feeling good, but it was very hot. That month, that summer, it got hot early. Even in May and early June, it was really hot. It, you know, and he always felt lousy. I'm short of breath, I can't breathe. He was like, lay down, get up, and you know, he said he couldn't breathe. So I kept saying, well, do you want me to, you know, what, you know, do you want me to call the doctor again? Do you want, want me to take you to the hospital? What do you want me to do? And this went on for about a half an hour, I guess. And finally he said, okay, you can call the ambulance. Because he, I guess, finally started Feeling that bad. Feeling, feeling bad enough, because you know how men are. They won't go for anything. So, called the ambulance, and he was showing some signs of maybe being a little bit disoriented, but he was still talking and everything, answering the questions. The paramedics thought, kind of what I did, that he was dehydrated from throwing up so much, and that his electrolytes might have been out of whack, because they said, well, we need to get some fluid in you and get some electrolytes. and. Um, his breathing was real fast. They, you know, tried to get him to slow his respirations down. They said he was hyperventilating, and they thought that was a lot of his problem. And they put him in the ambulance and, you know, transported him. And about, after we'd gotten out of our neighborhood and into... And through the other neighborhood, we were... Still kind of going on the back roads, they turned the lights on, and that kind of scared me. When they, because there wasn't traffic, it was, um, so we were crossing over the lake, they turned the lights on. But I called his parents in after I'd um, done all the paperwork. You know, they took him on back, but I had to give them the insurance information and everything. They eventually called me back there, and he was still conscious, but he was way incoherent. You know, he wasn't making any sense and he was real like wanting to get up off the 
gurney and everything, and, and they finally had to give him some Ativan IV to calm him down because he wouldn't stay, you know. What's that? Ativan is, um, it's in the same family as Valium. Um, wound up putting him then in the MACU, Medical Intensive Care Unit. By the time he got up there, he wasn't really conscious anymore, but then they had pumped him full of Ativan too, so it's hard to say. You know, I don't know at what point... Really? <laughs> I'm not on so loft anymore, so... <laughs> I don't know at what point he really went into a coma, you know, and when it was the Ativan. I know that night. Um, I mentioned to him he wore the extended wear lenses, and even though you sleep in those things, you know, the, the nurses don't usually like for patients to have them in. I know they make you take them out. Usually that's one of the things they ask you, and I brought it. They said, well, would you take his lenses out now? And, and he he kind of responded to that, you know, like whenever I was trying to remove his lenses, which is really hard to do on another person. During the course of it, you know, when we were going over, you know, trying to, you know, figure out everything, I told him that he had been complaining of shortness of breath for a few weeks. About in early May, he started complaining of shortness of breath. And the first week or two of May, he had had a, a stress echo. I, I finally got him to go to our doctor, and he ordered a stress echo. And early the next morning, the doctor called and said that they'd already gotten the toxicology back, which they weren't expecting that for a long time. They said it would take, you know, a couple of days, which sounds kind of bad. And they said they'd gotten it back and they found methanol in his system. Apparently, your body doesn't metabolize methanol. That's what they were telling me. And then I, I read up on it. As soon as they told me this is what it was, I started reading up on it, too, on the Internet. Your body can't metabolize methanol like it does ethanol. When it, do, when it tries to, it breaks down into formaldehyde maybe some other things, but the formaldehyde is what is really bad. So what they do is to try to, the same enzyme that in your body that works on the methanol is the same enzyme that breaks down ethanol, the kind of alcohol that you drink. So the treatment is to infuse ethanol intravenously and then your body, instead of working on the methanol, it kind of leaves it alone and works on the ethanol. That gives them time to try to use dialysis and stuff to get the methanol out of your system. Well, they kept saying they weren't able to get his blood alcohol level up enough. And even though they were taking into consideration that he was a drinker, you know, apparently drinkers, you know, you can handle more alcohol. Your body works with it better. So they, you know, gave him more than what they would have a non-drinker, but they said they weren't, didn't feel like they were able to get his blood alcohol level up enough. So they, but they were doing the dialysis. Um, I think they started him on that the next, the very next day, I believe, the 
second day. They start him on the dialysis. But, you know, he just wasn't responding at all. He just, you know, um, like I said, they, you know, then they, they decided he was in a coma at some point, I guess, because after the Ativan wore off and they weren't, and he still was unresponsive. They um, did a CAT scan and said that he had suffered a major That he had suffered a major brain bleed, <clears throat> brain bleed, and the size and location was such that he said no, no one could survive that, even if they were successful in getting the methanol out of his body. That because of the the bleeding in the brain, you know, that wasn't. So they started talking about discontinuing life support. And you know, we talked about it. Um, that was on that Wednesday. And you know, they kept assuring us that there was no way, even if they kept treating the math and all, that because of the brain damage, that there was nothing that could be done. So I wanted to wait until the next, give it another day. Um, well, I was the one that called the police. <laughs> that morning, that Wednesday morning, when Dr. Akers, he called me before I got there, you know, it was before 7.30. I was getting Megan ready for school. He said, we think this may have been a poisoning, an intentional poisoning, and you need to get the police involved. I'm like, how do I do that, you know? So I said, okay, even though we, that afternoon before you know, the decision about removing life support. I met the police. They asked me to come back to the house so they could look for possible sources. Specialists have looked at it now said that the amount of diet drinks that he consumed would easily account for the levels of methanol that he had in his body. I think drinking the creatine just kind of must have pushed it over the edge, you know. Um, adulteration of a substance and first-degree murder. And the jury um, gave me 20 years on the adulteration and 30 on the murder, and the judge ran them concurrently. We're all human, you know, people are human, and people like to believe that 12 people on a jury found her guilty, so she must be guilty. No way, you know? I mean, I've, I have argued that since day one, and I still do not understand what those people could have possibly heard and those testimonies, you read the transcript, what could they have heard that could possibly have convinced them that Diane Fleming could have killed her husband? I included Diane Fleming in my journey because chronic methanol toxicity from aspartame was not considered at all in her case. Instead, they chose to prosecute her for supposedly pouring a sealed bottle of blue windshield wiper fluid into Gatorade to poison her husband. While there is no way that I can definitively state the precise or exact cause of my own condition, I did drink 6 to 10 cans of diet soda per day for 20 years, and when my body told me to stop, I eventually got better. I can also state that I have spoken to healthcare professionals who agree with me that aspartame is a probable culprit. When I first embarked upon this journey, a part of me was expecting to return empty-handed. 
What I uncovered, however, was that the current measures of food safety are failing us. So what do we do today? Say to the makers and manufacturers of aspartame now, if you could. I think they owe me a fortune. They owe me an apology. If they owe me a fortune, I live on Social Security disability. I have nothing left. I'm very heavily in debt. I am trying very hard to start my own business, but that in itself takes money that I don't have. So I'm doing it bits and pieces as I can. But after that, I mean, just each day was just better and better and better. I'm still finding things that it's in because they don't label it very well, and that is very, very aggravating um, because you have to read each label, and I've got three kids and everything, and I don't have a whole lot of time to go spending a year and a half in the grocery store to do a week's worth of groceries and reading every label that I get my hands on. I've been into chat areas and talked to people with multiple sclerosis and they're very, very hostile to people like me. So I don't tout it too much. All the while I've learned that uh, there is a very safe uh, sweetener that's an alternative to sugar called Stevia. S-T-E-V-I-A. To this day, the FDA will not allow Stevia to be labeled advertised or promoted as a sweetener. It cannot state that. It's just an alternative food supplement. Recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Constitution of the United States of America, 1787. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Article 1. Section 1. All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and House of Representatives. Section 2. The House of Representatives shall be composed of members chosen every second year by the people of the several states, and the electors in each state shall have the qualifications requisite for electors of the most numerous branch of the state legislature. No person shall be a representative who shall not have attained to the age of 25 years and been seven years a citizen of the United States, and who shall not, when elected, be an inhabitant of that state in which he shall be chosen. Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within this union according to their respective numbers, which shall be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years and excluding Indians not taxed, three-fifths of all other persons. The actual enumeration shall be made within three years of the first meeting of the Congress of the United States and within every subsequent term of ten years, in such manner as they shall by law direct. 
the number of representatives shall not exceed one for every 30,000, but each state shall have at least one representative, and until such enumeration can be made, the state of New Hampshire shall be entitled to choose three, Massachusetts eight, Rhode Island and Providence plantations one, Connecticut five, New York six, New Jersey four, Pennsylvania eight, Delaware one, Maryland six, Virginia ten, North Carolina five, South Carolina five, and Georgia three. When vacancies happen in the representation from any state, the executive authority thereof shall issue writs of election to fill such vacancies. The House of Representatives shall choose their speaker and other officers and shall have sole power of impeachment. Section 3. The Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state, chosen by the legislature thereof for six years, and each senator shall have one vote. Immediately after they shall be assembled in consequence of the first election, they shall be divided as equally as may be into three classes. The seats of the senators of the first class shall be vacated at the expiration of the second year, of the second class at the expiration of the fourth year, and of the third class at the expiration of the sixth year, so that one-third may be chosen every second year. And if vacancies happen by resignation or otherwise during the recess of the legislature of any state, the executive thereof may make temporary appointments until the next meeting of the legislature, which shall then fill such vacancies. No person shall be a senator who shall not have attained to the age of 30 years and had been nine years a citizen of the United States, and who shall not, when elected, be an inhabitant of that state for which he shall be chosen. The Vice President of the United States shall be President of the Senate, but shall have no vote unless they be equally divided. The Senate shall choose their other officers, and also a President pro tem, in the absence of the Vice President, or when he shall exercise the office of the President of the United States. The Senate shall have sole power to try all impeachments, when sitting for that purpose, they shall be on oath or affirmation. When the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall preside, and no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States, but the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. Section 4. The times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, but the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations except as to the places of choosing senators. The Congress shall assemble at least once in every year, and such meetings shall be on the first Monday in December, unless they shall by law appoint a different day. Section 5. Each House shall be the judge of elections, returns, and qualifications of its own members, and a majority of each shall constitute a quorum to do business. But a smaller number may adjourn from day to day, and may be authorized to compel the attendance of absent members, in such manner and under such penalties as each House may provide. Each House may determine the rules of its proceedings, punish its members for disorderly behavior, and with the concurrence of two-thirds, expel a member. Each House shall keep a journal of its proceedings, and from time to time publish the same, accepting such parts as may in their judgment require secrecy. And the yeas and nays of the members of either house on any question shall, at the desire of one-fifth of those present, be entered on the journal. Neither house, during the session of Congress, shall, without consent of the other, adjourn for more than three days, nor to any other place than that in which the two houses shall be sitting. Section 6. The senators and representatives shall receive a compensation for their services to be ascertained by law and paid out of the Treasury of the United States. 
They shall in all cases, except treason, felony, and breach of the peace, be privileged from arrest during their attendance at the session of their respective houses, and in going to and returning from the same, and for any speech or debate in either house, they shall not be questioned in any other place. No senator or representative shall, during the time for which he was elected, be appointed to any civil office under the authority of the United States, which shall have been created, or the emoluments whereof shall have been increased during such time, and no person holding any office under the United States shall be a member of either house during his continuance in office. Section 7. All bills for raising revenue shall originate in the House of Representatives, but the Senate may propose or concur with amendments as on other bills. Every bill which shall have passed the House of Representatives and the Senate shall, before it becomes a law, be presented to the President of the United States. If he approve, he shall sign it, but if not, he shall return it with his objections to that house in which it shall have originated, who shall enter the objections at large on their journal and proceed to reconsider it. If, after such reconsideration, two-thirds of that house shall agree to pass the bill, it shall be sent together with the objections to the other house, by which it shall likewise be reconsidered, and, if approved by two-thirds of that house, it shall become a law. But in all such cases, the votes of both houses shall be determined by yeas and nays, and the names of persons voting for and against the bill shall be entered on the journal of each house respectively. If any bill shall not be returned by the President within ten days, Sundays excepted, after it shall have been presented to him, the same shall be a law, in like manner as if he had signed it, unless the Congress by their adjournment prevent its return, in which case it shall not be a law. Every order, resolution, or vote to which the concurrence of the Senate and House of Representatives may be necessary, except on a question of adjournment, shall be presented to the President of the United States, and before the same shall take effect, shall be approved by him, or, being disapproved by him, shall be repassed by two-thirds of the Senate and the House of Representatives, according to the rules and limitations prescribed in the case of a bill. Section 8. The Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. But all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. To borrow money on the credit of the United States. To regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. To establish a uniform rule of naturalization and uniform laws on the subject of bankruptcies throughout the United States to coin money, regulate the value thereof and of foreign coin, and fix the standard of weights and measures, to provide for the punishment of counterfeiting the securities and current coin of the United States, to establish post offices and post roads, to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries, to constitute tribunals inferior to the Supreme Court, to define and punish piracies and felonies committed on the high seas and offenses against the law of nations, to declare war, grant letters of mark and reprisal, make rules concerning captures on land and water, to raise and support armies, but no appropriation of money to that use shall be for longer term than two years, to provide and maintain a navy, to make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces, to provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections, and repel invasions, to provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia, and for governing such part of them as may be employed in the service of the United States, 
reserving to the states respectively the appointment of the officers and the authority of training the militia according to the discipline prescribed by Congress. To exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such district, not exceeding 10 miles square, as may, by session of particular states and the acceptance of Congress, become the seat of government of the United States and to exercise like authority over all places purchased by the consent of the legislature of the state in which the same shall be, for the erection of forts, magazines, arsenals, dockyards, and other needful buildings, and to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers, and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States, or in any department or officer thereof. Section 9. The migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1808, but a tax or duty may be imposed on such importation not exceeding $10 for each person. The privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless, when in cases of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it. No bill of attainder or ex post facto law shall be passed. No capitation or other direct tax shall be laid, unless in proportion to the census or enumeration herein before directed to be taken. No tax or duty shall be laid on articles exported from any state. No preference shall be given by any regulation of commerce or revenue to the ports of one state over those of another, nor shall vessels bound to or from one state be obliged to enter, clear, or pay duties in another. No money shall be drawn from the Treasury but in consequence of appropriations made by law, and a regular statement and account of the receipts and expenditures of all public money shall be published from time to time. No title of nobility shall be granted by the United States, and no person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall, without consent of the Congress, accept of any present emolument, office, or title of any kind whatever from any king, prince, or foreign state. Section 10. No state shall enter into any treaty, alliance, or confederation, grant letters of mark and reprisal, coin money, emit bills of credit, make anything but gold and silver coin a tendering payment of debts, pass any bill of attainder, ex post facto law, or law impairing the obligation of contracts, or grant any title of nobility. No state shall, without the consent of Congress, lay any imposts or duties on imports or exports, except what may be absolutely necessary for executing its inspection laws. And the net produce of all duties and imposts laid by any state on imports or exports shall be for the use of the Treasury of the United States, and all such laws shall be subject to the revision and control of the Congress. No state shall, without the consent of Congress, lay any duty of tonnage, keep troops, or ships of war in time of peace, enter into any agreement or compact with another state or with a foreign power, or engage in war unless actually invaded, or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay. End of Article 1. Article 2. Section 1. The executive power shall be vested in a President of the United States of America. He shall hold his office during the term of four years, and together with the Vice President chosen for the same term, be elected as follows. Each state shall appoint, in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct, a number of electors, equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in the Congress. But no senator or representative, or person holding an office of trust or profit under the United States, shall be appointed an elector. The electors shall meet in their respective states, and vote by ballot for two persons, of whom one, at least, shall not lie an inhabitant of the same state with themselves. 
and they shall make a list of all the persons voted for, and of the number of votes for each, which list they shall sign and certify, and transmit sealed to the seat of government of the United States, directed to the President of the Senate. The President of the Senate shall, in the presence of the Senate and House of Representatives, open all certificates, and the votes shall then be counted. The person having the greatest number of, the person having the greatest number of votes shall be the President, if such number be a majority of the whole number of electors appointed, and if there be more than one who have such majority, and have an equal number of votes, then the House of Representatives shall immediately choose by ballot one of them for President. And if no person have a majority, then from the five highest on the list the said House shall in like manner choose the President. But in choosing the President, the vote shall be taken by states, the representation from each state having one vote, a quorum for this purpose, shall consist of a member or members from two-thirds of the states, and a majority of all the states shall be necessary to a choice. In every case, after the choice of the president, the person having the greatest number of votes of the electors shall be the vice president. But if there should remain two or more who have equal votes, the Senate shall choose from them by ballot the vice president. The Congress may determine the time of choosing the electors and the day on which they shall give their votes, which day shall be the same throughout the United States. No person except a natural-born citizen, or a citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of this Constitution, shall be eligible to the office of President. Neither shall any person be eligible to that office who shall not have attained the age of 35 years and been 14 years a resident within the United States. In case of the removal of the President from office, or of his death, resignation, or inability to discharge the powers and duties of the said office, the same shall devolve on the Vice President, and the Congress may by law provide for the case of removal, death, resignation, or inability, both of the President and Vice President, declaring what officer shall then act as President, and such officer shall accordingly, until the disability be removed, or a President shall be elected. The President shall, at stated times, receive for his services a compensation, which shall neither be increased nor diminished during the period for which he shall have been elected and he shall not receive within that period any other emolument from the United States or any of them. Before he enter on the execution of office, he shall take the following oath or affirmation. I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Section 2. The President shall be Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States and of the Militia of the several states when called into the actual service of the United States. He may require the opinion in writing of the principal officer in each of the executive departments upon any subject relating to the duties of their respective offices, and he shall have power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. He shall have power, by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, to make treaties, provided two-thirds of the Senators present concur, and he shall nominate, and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States, whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for, and which shall be established by law. But Congress may by law vest the appointment of such inferior officers as they think proper in the President alone, in the courts of law, or in the heads of departments. The President shall have power to fill up all vacancies that may happen during the recess of the Senate by granting commissions which shall expire at the end of their next session.
Section 3. He shall from time to time give to Congress information of the State of the Union, and recommend to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. He may, on extraordinary occasions, convene both houses, or either of them, and in case of disagreement between them, with respect to the time of adjournment, he may adjourn them to such time as he shall think proper. He shall receive ambassadors and other public ministers. He shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed, and shall commission all the officers of the United States. Section 4. The President, Vice President, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. End of Article 2. Article 3. Section 1. The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one supreme court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. The judges, both of the supreme and inferior courts, shall hold their offices during good behavior and shall at stated times receive for their services a compensation which shall not be diminished during their continuance in office. Section 2. The judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this Constitution, the laws of the United States, and treaties made or which shall be made under their authority. To all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, to all cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction, to all controversies in which the United States shall be a party, to all controversies between two or more states, between a state and citizens of another state, between citizens of different states, between citizens of the same state claiming lands under grants of different states, and between a state or the citizens thereof and foreign states, citizens or subjects. In all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, and those in which a state shall be a party, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction. In all other cases before mentioned, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction, both as to law and fact, with such exceptions and under such regulations as Congress shall make. The trial of all crimes, except in cases of impeachment, shall be by jury, and such trial shall be held in the state where the said crimes have been committed, but when not committed within any state, the trial shall be at such place or places as the Congress may by law have directed. Section 3. Treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. No person shall be convicted of treason unless on the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act or on confession in open court. The Congress shall have the power to declare the punishment of treason, but no attainder of treason shall work corruption of blood or forfeiture except during the life of the person attained. End of Article 3. Article 4. Section 1. Full faith and credit shall be given in each state to the public acts, records, and judicial proceedings of every other state, and the Congress may by general laws prescribe the manner in which such acts, records, and proceedings shall be proved, and the effect thereof. Section 2. The citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of the citizens in the several states. A person charged in any state with treason, felony, or other crime, who shall flee from justice and be found in another state, shall, on demand of the executive authority of the state from which he fled, be delivered up to be removed to the state having jurisdiction of the crime. No person held to service or labor in one state, under the laws thereof, escaping into another, shall, in consequence of any law or regulation therein, 
be discharged from such service or labor, but shall be delivered up on the claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due. Section 3. New states may be admitted by the Congress to this union, but no new state shall be formed or erected within the jurisdiction of any other state, nor any state be formed by the junction of two or more states or parts of states without the consent of the legislatures of the states concerned, as well as of the Congress. The Congress shall have power to dispose of and make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory or other property belonging to the United States, and nothing in this Constitution shall be so construed as to prejudice any claims of the United States or of any particular state. Section 4. The United States shall guarantee to every state in this Union a Republican form of government, and shall protect each of them against invasion, and on application of the legislature or of the executive, when the legislature cannot be convened, against domestic violence. End of Article 4. The Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution, or, on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states, shall call a convention for proposing amendments, which, in either case, shall be valid to all intents and purposes as a part of this Constitution when ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the several states, or by conventions in three-fourths thereof, as the one or the other mode of ratification may be proposed by the Congress provided that no amendment which may be made prior to the year 1808 shall in any manner affect the first and fourth clauses in the ninth section of the first article, and that no state without its consent shall be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate. End of Article 5. Article 6. All debts contracted and engagements entered into before the adoption of this Constitution shall be as valid against the United States under this Constitution as under the Confederation. This Constitution and the laws of the United States which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby, anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding. The senators and representatives before mentioned, and the members of the several state legislatures, and all executive and judicial officers, both of the United States and of the several states, shall be bound by oath or affirmation to support this Constitution, but no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. End of Article 6. Article 7. The ratifications of the conventions of nine states shall be sufficient for the establishment of the Constitution between the states so ratifying the same. Done in convention, by the unanimous consent of the states present, the 17th day of September in the year of our Lord, 1787, and of the independence of the United States of America, the 12th. In witness thereof, we have hereunto subscribed our names. George Washington, President and Deputy from Virginia. New Hampshire, John Langdon, Nicholas Gilman. Massachusetts, Nathaniel Gorham, Rufus King. Connecticut, William Samuel Johnson. Roger Sherman, New York, Alexander Hamilton, New Jersey, William Livingston, David Brearley, William Patterson, Jonah Dayton, Pennsylvania, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Mifflin, Robert Morris, George Clymer, Thomas Fitzsimmons, Jared Ingelsall, James Wilson, Governor Morris, Delaware, George Reed, Gunning Bedford, Jr., John Dickinson, Richard Bassett, Jacob Broom, Maryland, 
James McHenry, Dan of St. Thomas Jennifer, Daniel Carroll, Virginia, John Blair, James Madison, Jr., North Carolina, William Blount, Richard Dobbs Spate, Hugh Williamson, South Carolina, J. Rutledge, Charles Coatsworth Pickney, Charles Pickney, Pierce Butler, Georgia, William Few, Abraham Baldwin, attested, William Jackson, Secretary. Food prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Gentlemen, I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and you're listening to Financial Survival. I'm here with my co-host, Alfred Adisk, to bring you our opinion and commentary on today's economic and political events for Wednesday, August 26, 2015. Good afternoon, Al. Hi, Melody. Well, we should call it Reversal Day today, and they finally got what they needed uh, after the bloodbath that uh, well, we've not been seeing here, but yeah, uh, they've had a big yeah, one. It, yeah, they had a big day today, and um, but still, on the scheme of things, uh, they were due, and uh, we'll see where the rest of the week uh, feathers. And uh, let's go ahead and look at the golden market, and of course, the gold and silver market, and of course, with the big moves in the the paper markets and the dollar pressure on gold. So eleven twenty four. 1124.50 down 16.90. You have silver down 55 at 14.24. Platinum did manage up five at 9.85, and palladium was down four at 537. The USDX was up big today, 1.24 at 95.26. Crude oil down 0.36 at 300, but $38.95. Oh, I couldn't even imagine what gasoline would be if it was 300. 
Three hundred and eighty for a barrel of oil. Anyway, uh, the paper markets today. Well, one thing you could say for sure, if it was three eighty, the price of gasoline would go up instantly to reflect that price. <laughs> now that the price of gasoline or crude oil is down, if, uh, um, still we'll wait a while before we reduce the price of the gasoline. The Dow today um, was up almost four percent, six hundred nineteen points at sixteen thousand two hundred and eighty-five. The Nasdaq was also it was up four and a quarter percent. 191 points at 4,697, and the S&P was also up almost 4%, 3.90, up 72 points at 1940. The 10-year yield is 2.17%. That was higher today. And, of course, with a stronger dollar, pressure on the euro, 1.13, down 1.54. It's interesting because uh, the European markets were all down and um, uh, Japan was up, uh, they had a good day, 3.20% at 588. And I didn't see what the China did. I think they kind of were balanced out for the day. I, I don't think they went down significantly overnight if they were in negative territory. But uh, Hong Kong was down one and a half, London 1.6, and Germany one and a third percent. Overnight, and what's interesting is all this, the, the performance sectors, um, uh, the sector performance for the three months—they're all negative. So there's still still a lot of pressure there to be had, and uh, we'll just see how this follows through. And um, and again, Al, I don't think we've seen much panic going on in the markets. But before we talk about that, we need to talk to Wendy Wilson from Apothecary Herbs. Today. Good afternoon, Wendy. Good afternoon, Melody. Hello, Al. How's everybody? Oh, we're good, Wendy. Oh, yay. Well, I thought I'd talk about what's uh, coming up for this uh, fall flu shot and what's going to be in the flu shot and whether the differences in the types of flu shots they're going to offer and what also they're doing with regards to uh, immunizing children with the flu shot. Because, you know, a lot of health authorities and governments, what they do is they examine and update those algorithms to determine not only, you know, what influenza pathogens to include in the flu vaccine, but also they want to determine the number of doses they should give children, especially ages six months to eight years of age. So there's two versions of the flu vaccine. One is called an attenuated influenza live vaccine, and the other one is called an inactivated dead influenza vaccine. So what we should know about these flu shots before we get them, if you're going to get them, let's just see. Now, according to WebMD.com, they said less than 20% of the United States population got the flu uh, each year. Less than 20% get it. And so not the flu shot, but get sick with the flu. Now, we're told there's like 200,000 people that get sick with the flu and then seek medical treatment, usually at the ER. Now, the CDC estimates the deaths due to influenza range from 3,000 to almost 50,000 with an incubation period of the virus of 10 days. Now, the key months, as you probably know, go through uh, October uh, through February. Those are the flu months. And about 156 million doses of the flu vaccine were uh, distributed last year. So last year's flu shot, though, only contained three viruses. It contained the California AH1N1 bird vaccine, 
vaccine. It contained the Texas AH32N bird vaccine. It contained the Massachusetts B influenza virus, and it also contained, um, well, those are the three. Those are the three that were in that last year's shot. So um, what do you suppose is going to be in this year's shot, Al? I'm not sure. Uh, maybe some rum? <laughs> oh, it might be an improvement, eh? Well, uh, this, for the 2015-16 flu season, the CDC says there's going to be bird flu, the H1N1 strain uh, called the California A strain from 2009. They're also going to include the Switzerland A strain, uh, a bird flu H3N2 from 1997. Uh, also, they're going to uh, they're going to include the Yamagata lineage virus HA1, and they think that virus is from southwestern China. And uh, the fourth virus they're going to put in there is the Australian Bisbane Victoria B strain virus from 2013. So what we have here is what is called a standard quadvirulent flu vaccine. It has four different strains, usually two A strains and two B strains of virus, okay? Those are the sub-levels of the viral strain. So uh, let's talk about that four viral flu shot for a minute because according to science, the quad virulent vaccine contains the four strains of viruses and these types of vaccines are different uh, and they're different for, get this out, selected age groups, okay? For instance, the nasal flu spray is given to children two years to adults of 49 years of age, and the CDC recommends that those younger than 65 need the higher dose flu shot, and those younger than 18 or older than 64 should get what is called the intradermal flu shot. Now, the difference is the intradermal is injected only into the skin and not the muscle, and uh, it uses a 90% smaller needle, supposedly has 40% less antigen, and uh, doesn't use a live flu virus, uses the killed virus. But oddly enough, the intradermal vaccine costs more than the regular trivalent version of the vaccine. Now, get this. The CDC admits that um, regardless of which vaccine you take, there is a small risk of harm or death. Okay, so they report normal reactions to to be redness at the uh, injection site, maybe some tenderness, also headache, muscle aches, tiredness, runny nose, and fever that usually resolve itself within a week. Doesn't that kind of sound like the flu? Yeah, it actually does, doesn't it? Yeah, so you're going to have the flu for a week. <laughs> when you get the flu shot, apparently. Um, now, other less common severe reactions occur, according to the CDC. So they and the manufacturer of the flu vaccine uh, recommend that if you're allergic to eggs, if you have asthma, if you have Guillain-Barre syndrome, if you've had prior experience with anaphylactic shock with vaccines, or if you're taking autoimmune suppressant drugs, not to get the flu shot. Also, with regards to pregnancy, the vaccine should be given to pregnant women, they say, only when necessary, and not never the live virus type of vaccine. So they should use the kill virus for the pregnant women, but they've not evaluated any of the flu shots for nursing mothers, so they don't know how that will react uh, to uh, affect the baby. The issue That's there the would be that the baby in the womb doesn't mm -hmm. have any natural immunities yet 
to the flu bug or the cold or anything else that we pick up after he's born. And if shortly after they're born, it's unclear how many immunities they have already acquired. I'm going to guess that's true. Is that roughly correct or just well, that okay. on my part? Well, no. Um, it, uh, science says that you know you 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 do accumulate. You do your mom passes on to you some form of resistance, but you usually get um, a very immature immune system with a newborn. Um, also, the um, the uh, nursing part. Uh, with the first four or five days of nursing is where the antibodies come through the breast milk, and that's what really mm-hmm. uh, powers up the baby's immune system. So mm-hmm. if the baby's not nursed, they're not going to get that. Um, also, but the implication uh, is prior to that nursing, he doesn't really have a strong immune system, no, and so no. they can't feed him. They can't take a chance on giving him a live, putting a live right. virus uh, yeah. into the mother. And it would, it would most likely, you know do some significant damage to a newborn. It should, should, yeah. Um, also, the, this year's flu virus, according to the uh, CDC, is called Afurea, and it's made by BioCSL Incorporated out of Pennsylvania, but they're manufacturing the vaccine itself in Bisbane, Australia, or I'm sorry, Melbourne, Australia. So uh, what they're doing with the kids now, Al, is uh, children six months to eight, uh, months of age, they're going to get two flu shots this year. And the CDC says the reason is because they've changed the viral composition of the vaccine. And they did some clinical trials in 2007, and they gave um, children 10 to 24 months of age one dose, and then children 6 to 24 months of age two doses. And they said they got um, no adverse events. So they say the, the children can't handle two shots. But here's something real important. And for those of you out there that uh, subscribe to the American Survival Newsletter that Melanie and Al write for, and so do I, uh, they're going to get a hot link in there regarding this interview with Professor of Genetics, Dr. Mark Greer. He reports there's a lot of fraud behind the vaccines, but especially the flu vaccine, because he's an expert in vaccine safety. That's his specialty. So he reports that there is poison in the vaccine, and the body reacts, and it can cause Guillain-Barre syndrome in most instances. And additionally, he says, the vaccine offers no protection against getting the flu. Now, here's something important. Dr. Greer reported that the CDC breaks the law with regard to vaccines being waived for long-term safety trials, and they approve a vaccine with just three three weeks of testing. He says that's going against the law in the books. He says it's also clinically impossible to evaluate the safety of a vaccine in just a three-week period, and it's and it's basically says it's experimenting on people's lives. And he also points out that the pharmaceutical companies and health authorities distribute and administer 300 million flu vaccines every year, netting them billions of dollars. And he says changing that flu vaccine each year makes it impossible to test its for efficiency. So he goes on to say that it's a medical fact that very few people die of influenza and the industry spends more resources and money on flu vaccines than it does on real solutions, he says, for heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. And by the way, 20 million vaccines for childhood diseases is distributed compared to 300 million in flu vaccines. Well, let me read you this um, quote by uh, Dr. David Rosenthal. He's director of Harvard University Health. He says, people don't necessarily die, per se, of the flu virus. What they do die of is the secondary condition called pneumonia. So, And that's real important to remember because 
in order to justify the flu vaccine distribution and push, the uh, CDC has to expand on the the category. So uh, what they call this is, uh, well, basically they have to expand the flu category compared to what what what's out there as far as people dying. People aren't cultured when they die, and it's just assumed it's the flu instead of them culturing what caused them to die. They just assume it's the flu virus. So basically what you have is uh, an expanded influenza-associated death uh, category. That's what the CDC uses to justify pushing the flu vaccine. Well, Does that make sense? If we, Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's, it's interesting that they sell so many flu virus doses, mm-hmm. um, but given that they can't test it, and right. I'm going to operate, and I'm going to assume that they have been given immunity from prosecution if people die from this stuff. Is that true or false, right. or do you know? That's true. Yeah. Then yeah. You got and a they, situation. I could start selling flu viruses and say, I'm only going to, Melody, I'm only going to charge you $100 for this flu virus. Come on over here, going to give you a shout. One for you, Wendy. One for all the listeners. And if you die, ha <laughs> ha, too bad for you. I'm going to keep the $100. I mean, it's a tremendous business model, and you're uh-huh. telling me we've got multiple viruses. We've got four viruses that they're defending yeah. against in this year's. Do these viruses, do we get permanent immunity from each of these four viruses? And well, will no, we that's... get permanent immunity next year from the next four and the next four? And do we ever run out of viruses? No. Let me answer that question with the next part I was going to tell you about. Um, Now, there was some microbiologists in 2013, a team of them from Bethesda, Maryland, at the Center of Biologics Evaluation and Research. And what they did is they tested vaccinated people with the flu vaccine as opposed to a group that got placebo. And what they found out was that, uh, in theory, theory, the vaccine is supposed to give you antibody protection, uh, but it doesn't. And the research showed that those who got vaccinated were less healthy, and they were five and a half times more likely to get respiratory illness. This is what they found out. The vaccinated group the vaccinated group contracted influenza by 100%, whereas the unvaccinated didn't get the flu. The vaccinated group also had 26% more cases of common cold, 160% more cases of various viruses, including polio, and 30% more cases of contracting respiratory-type viruses. So they concluded that when you're vaccinated with the flu vaccine, your overall increased health risk goes up by 18.5%. There you yeah. go. Yeah, I, uh, that's, I mean, you're selling something. The, the, the real research on the flu vaccine should go into the sales and promotion because nobody knows what's in it. Nobody can test what's in it. Even if they know what's in it, they can't really test it. We're just going to sell it. What's the most effective device to scare these people into buying these vaccines? And we'll keep the money. I know. And, and I've got. Whether they work or they don't work, it doesn't matter. I know. And I got a part. We're going to sell another one. I know, and I know we're out of time, but I got a part two to this, and we'll have to do it next week. But it's more on uh, Dr. Greer and what he says. Also, what a professor of microbiology at Harvard Medical School says about this. So uh, we'll we'll take that next time. How's that? Sounds good. All right. Just little contact information, Wendy. Okay, uh, Apothecary Herbs, you can call for free product catalog to boost your immune system this flu season. The number is toll-free at 866-229-3663, 866-229-3663, or thepowerherbs.com. Thanks, guys.
Thank you, Wendy. That's Wendy Wilson from thepowerherbs.com, 866-229-3663. Melody and I will be back in just a moment. Please stay tuned. Pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in untested vaccine, hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate for those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand. Have a plan. Have peace and request your pandemic kit today. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. That's 866-229-3663, or thepowerherbs.com. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. I'm Alfred Addis, here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival. The program is brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver. What's next, Melody? Well, the stock market um, in the last six days has lost $2.1 trillion of value. 
And, uh, of course, we all know it was the, the fears and the economic supposed slowdown in China. Uh, we've talked about that, uh, you know, for the past two days and of last week. And um, so um, that's what has been lost. And um, so it's a lot that has been lost. And um, one way of looking at it as an example was it's like erasing almost the entire value of the British version of the S&P 500. Uh, that index is worth about $2.8 trillion. So I think sometimes we throw around that trillion mark, that $1 trillion, $2 trillion, and, uh, you know, we, we sort of forget the the mass of it. Uh, you know, I mean, it's huge. I mean, it's huge numbers. You know, we have millions and what's a few billion, and now we're at what's a few trillion. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think people sort of lose the uh, grasp of just how much really was lost. And, um, and not only the grasp of how much was lost, but the the implications of that loss. Much of that stock that was sitting at 17200 500 a month ago, much of that stock may have been used as collateral for loans. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, $2 trillion worth of that stock has now disappeared, at least for the moment. And it's not just transferred into somebody else's bank account. For the moment, it is gone disappeared it has ceased to exist and it implies that if there's loans issued based on at least some portion of that two trillion is used as collateral for for loans those loans have to be called in and given that we have fractional reserve banking it could be that you have to call in nine dollars worth of loans for every one dollar of collateral that's disappeared which leads you, you know, you can sit back and say, you can play with this, and I don't know what the numbers are. This is all just speculative, hypo- hypothetical, and the rest of it. But out of the $2 trillion that's disappeared, let's say $200 billion were used as collateral for loans. Maybe that's reason. That's 10%. Maybe that's reasonable. Maybe not. I don't know. But if it was $200 billion, and if it was used to lend out nine times that much under fractional reserve banking, you'd be talking about close to $2 trillion that would have to be pulled back, called back on loans out of the economy right now. We're only $16, $17 trillion GDP. You know, we're talking the potential here, if any of that stock is used as collateral, and if it's been loaned out under fractional reserve banking at a ratio of 9 to 1, we're talking about you could have to $2 trillion worth of loans might have to be recalled. That's the implication, and that is serious. It, and the point is that it's not just a matter of, gee, I had some stock, and now my stock has turned out to be worth less than worth less than it was, or maybe I had a particularly bad bunch of stock and it's turned out to be worthless and I've lost money. It goes beyond that. It's a lot of internal. It's not just how much did I lose, it's did my did I use any of that stock to borrow other money? 
And if I did, then the loans themselves, those can be made to disappear. And there's there's a lot of consequences here. So this isn't just, you know, a single day's event. Oh, my gosh, we lost 500 points. Oh, my gosh, we made 500 points. That's not just what's happening here. It's more complex. So where is it going to end? I don't know. Well, I think we know where it's going to end. We just don't know when it's going to end. But uh, this is the lowest. Uh, the Dow, after yesterday's close, was the lowest level since February of 2014. So it's pretty much wiped out both uh, 2015 and 2014 gains. Yeah. And uh, you're right. There, there's so much uh, internal uh, disruption and losses that uh, you know we don't hear about or will experience at a later date and time. And um, so this could and be... Mm-hmm. They can also trigger things. Absolutely. I mean, this Absolutely. is one of those things like a chain reaction that we see in a nuclear uh, reactor. You know, you got one, you send one little neutron out, it hits one of these atoms and splits it in half, sends out two neutrons, they hit two atoms, split them in half. And this thing, in theory, it can multiply. We'll see where it goes. It's not over, but it has, for the moment, it appears that the worst the worst part of it is is done and that the markets are going to make some sort of a recovery. But will they get back up to 17,000, nobody? Um, you know, they can do anything. They can move these numbers any direction they want. But, again, the fundamentals are there to push it there. No, they're not. And, you know, you hear all this talk, you know, all these, uh, you know, the Merrill Lynch's, you know, the, you know, all these other, you know, brokers and so forth. Oh, Oh, there's positive fundamentals of an improving economic growth. And, uh, you know, this is just, uh, you know, a short-term uh, correction we've all been experiencing. And uh, I'm sorry, I, I think it's much deeper than, uh, you know, a short-term 10% uh, correction in the market. So, um, but, you know, I, I, I wouldn't bet against the powers to be. I wouldn't have bet. Um, I bet long term, which is gold and silver. So, um. you know, it wasn't all that long ago when people were talking about the stock market going up over eighteen thousand and going on to nineteen thousand, hitting twenty thousand. And I think that was earlier this year. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. It, it was mm-hmm. within the last six months or so. Oh, well, they were talking. advocating that idea, and there's oh yeah. Um, I don't think we're going to talk about twenty thousand. On the Dow Jones, I don't think we're gonna. That's gonna be a, a live issue for a number. No, they're gonna pray of that it stays. The they're gonna pray that it stays here. <laughs> they might be able. They might be able to push it back up to seventeen thousand. They might be able to push it back up that high, but I doubt that they're gonna be able to push it much higher than that. They may be able to regain the losses they suffered since Monday a week ago. Um, they might be able to regain them, or maybe they only regain part of them. But I don't think we're going to. Anyone's going to be talking about eighteen thousand or twenty thousand anytime soon. I think that that ship has sailed. I mean, you're going to have to have some pretty strong numbers come out of China. You know, like all of a sudden their stimulus is working, and that's that won't happen. So, no, it isn't. You know, so no, I I don't foresee anything. There's a report out today that Ford is making plans to sell small pickup trucks in the U.S. again, and a person that was briefed on the matter says the company is considering. So that doesn't mean it is, or they actually will uh, make the the pickup here, but they are considering a new version of the Ranger pickup, 
as well as a small rugged SUV. Supposedly, Ford is talking with the UAW about making these vehicles at a factory near Detroit. And um, what's interesting is the factory near Detroit um, will no longer produce the vehicles that they're making, which are compact cars, because those are being moved to Mexico in 2018. So You can get free Oreos with your <laughs> Ford Compact. So, you know, here we have, uh, you know, and I think this is just back to this image building uh, to make people think, oh, well, Ford is uh, going to, uh, you know, start making these Ranger pickups and maybe a small SUV here in the States. And in the meantime, while they're, quote, unquote, considering this, um, they'll be moving the production of vehicles from uh, a suburb of Wayne down to Mexico. So well, they don't want anyone in Detroit rioting. Mm. They're going to say, oh, you're selling our jobs down the river. We're going to lose all our jobs. And they're saying, no, we're going to build a plant here where we're going to make Ranger pickups and maybe even rickshaws. I think rickshaws are going to be more popular as time goes on here in the U.S., Melody. Well, I'm thinking about getting into the rickshaw business myself. Maybe as a designer, maybe as a builder, maybe as one of the guys who pulls the rickshaw down the road. You're going to supplement your income as you can. Uh, also today, orders to U.S. factories for long-lasting man, uh, manufactured goods. The Durable Goods Report was out. So they reported that it rose in July. And uh, the Commerce Department said orders for durable goods increased 2% in July. It's like, oh, okay, 2%. But in June, there's a 4.1% gain. So to me, it looks like it was a decline of 2% from the 4% gain in June. So, again, a sign of slowing. It's a sign of slowing. And, uh, and so spinning. Slowing, but the, the actual economy is slowing. Spinning is picking up. It's becoming faster and faster as they try to put a happy face on whatever's going on here. And they spin it with the July increase is encouraging. Um, U.S. manufacturers still are having a problem because of the stronger dollar to the uh, economic turbulence in China, and they continue to spin the story. So um, that probably had a little bit of impact on the markets today showing that uh, this was a good number coming out, but you know, the spin was better than the number. Well, that's always the truth. That's, that's, that's the fundamental reality of life today. Um, come for the reality, stay for the spin. Uh, that should be the government's, mm -hmm. the government's motto. Um, and there's another interesting... Instead of in God we trust, we come for the reality, stay for the spin. The FTC today came out. Uh, there was a pyramid scheme, and uh, they're shutting down this company, it's VEMA, V-E-M-M-A, Nutrition. They've been temporarily shut down for operating a pyramid scheme that promised college students riches. So, I mean, my point to the story <laughs> is... If you want to, the only people who can promise college student riches are the ones who run the university. Come to our school, pay us a small fortune, then you get rich when you go into. Yeah, I know. But, but uh, least, you've got someone else who's promising college student riches. That's very wrong. Tell us about my, it. My point is, it isn't so much the story that they shut this down because it, you know it was a scam and so forth. But very, I don't know very many pyramid schemes that have been successful. 
And uh, so we talk a lot about the, the, the gram bars and the gram gold and so forth that is sold on a, a pyramid-type program, and it's difficult, and very few people are successful. Not to say that they can't be successful, but very you, but need, you need a large volume. You have to work hard. Not people. You have to work hard. People. It's the nature of the pyramid idea. One guy sells to two, two sell to four, four sell to eight, and so on, on down the line. Works. Well, it works for a while, but eventually you get to a point where there aren't any people left. And the guys at the bottom of the pyramid where you've got the maximum number of people, all of a sudden they just don't have a product anyone wants to buy. And now everybody, they're hot and the whole thing's then then the pyramid begins to implode. Ones at the top get out, hope yep. from their perspective with whatever they uh, were able to acquire in the course of you know selling this pyramid scheme and the rest of them get caught in the wreckage. But if pyramid schemes are so bad, Melody, answer me this. How come government gave us a fiat monetary system full of debt-based currency? Why is Wall Street still working? Well, because there's still new money coming in. That's why. Uh, that's the problem. They yep. haven't run out of fools yet. They haven't run out of fools they yet. Still. Mm-hmm. All right. A debt-based monetary system requires you to go deeper into debt every single year and more debt and more debt and more debt. And it is essentially a pyramid scheme. And if the point we reach a point where nobody else wants to go into debt anymore, all of a sudden the, the pyramid begins to implode. And that is the moment that many of us believe we are approaching. We are within months or a few years of that moment, and we're going to have to face up to the fact that, oh, you know, we can't go deeper into debt. Then what? What happens to the debt-based monetary system when you can't go deeper into debt? Are you asking me that question now? Well, you could answer. It's optional. Or you, or you can answer it. Why don't you answer it now? No, no, no. I don't. You know, I go on and on with those answers, Melody. Yeah, I know you do. And I didn't know that Walmart actually sold AR-15s and semi-automatic weapons. But they're, they're, they won't much longer. They're going to stop selling the AR-15 and other semi-automatic weapons at its stores because fewer people are buying them. I find that hard to believe, but this is their reason. Uh, the retailer says it's going to replace them with more hunting rifles and shotguns. And uh, they said that the semi-automatic weapons were sold at fewer than a third of its 4,600 stores and um um, so they're removing the semi-automatic weapons this week as it prepares its stores for fall merchandise. So I didn't know they sold AR-15s. I didn't either. I'd never seen them there, but I Mm-mm. hadn't looked one way or the other. But I didn't know they the sold stores. I don't know the stores I visit. I'm trying to think. I've seen I've seen shotguns there, unconventional rifles, I think, but I don't recall ever seeing anything <laughs> like an AR-15. Nope. Or any semi-automatics either. But I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, what can you say? I think it's just evidence that they've, right now they've sold so many AR-15s, just about everybody over 18 has one. The market is saturated, you know. I don't know, but... They can't uh, play more. So... Image building, image building, that's what these multinational corporations do. Illusion building. Illusion building and image. 
Do you know what? We're the good guys. Keep keep buying from us. Go ahead. The essence of most advertising is to instill in people a a spirit of covetousness. They teach you, ooh, if I can get that new Cadillac, that means I can pick up a young girl. Um, They teach us to covet with advertising, and it's an interesting insight because the Bible tells us thou shalt not covet. Advertising got a problem here, you know. They're a little bit. They are. They teach us to covet, and they they have some beautiful model to advertise some gigaw that you wouldn't normally buy. But if you see a beautiful model wearing, you say, "Yeah, yeah, I want one of those." Yeah, and they spend you know small fortunes figuring out how to make people covet their product. But the Bible warns us, "Thou shalt not covet," and yet we do. We are all prone to it. Let's take a break for some commercials. See if we can get you you folks to covet a few things. And we will be right back on Financial Survival. Please stay tuned. Half of all men over 50 have an enlarged prostate. You can shrink your prostate without harmful drugs or risky surgery. The secret to healing the prostate is to cleanse the prostate without harmful drugs or risky surgery. The secret to healing the prostate is to cleanse the prostate and the liver. Call Apothecary Herbs to ask about the Prostate Kit for a comprehensive way to heal and soothe your prostate. Educate yourself on how easy it can be to disinfect, cleanse, and restore your prostate glands. Call Apothecary Herbs for the Prostate Kit and successfully reduce swelling, inflammation, dissolve stones, and cleanse the blood to obtain the results you need. Money-back guarantee with every purchase. Call the experts in organ cleansing. Call Apothecary Herbs now for the Prostate Kit and empower yourself. Toll-free 866-229-3663 for international callers 704-875-8010. That's toll-free 866-229-3663 or visit the web at thepowerherbs.com. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. I'm 
I'm Alfred Addis here with Melody Cedarstrom on financial survival. What's next, Melody? Well, I am running a special today on Mint State 61, $20 Liberty Gold Pieces. The price on those today will be $13.85 for Mint State 61, $20 Gold Pieces. And uh, they're a really good buy. Uh, we got a special in, and um, uh, Ashley, my wholesaler, informed me that um, uh, we can sell. Minst- Actually, let me cor- make, let me make a correction. Minst State sixty-two twenty-dollar gold pieces are actually being sold. No, that's not right. Yes. Anyway, they're selling Minst State, State sixty-two for Minst State sixty-one no, price. Sixty-one prices. Yes. It's been such a hectic week, Al. And uh, so, Mint State 62, $20 gold pieces, thirteen eighty five. Give us a call at 800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. What a difference a day can make. Well, it depends on which day we're talking about. And uh, Silver Eagles, we're looking at three to four weeks out. We can still lock in prices on those. Premiums are rising. Silver Rounds, we're looking till the 1st of November. Um, the only immediate delivery for silver or Morgan Silver Dollars, we still have some of those available. And uh, the Perth Mint, uh, we have some rounds, Silver Rounds from the Perth Mint um, that is available for immediate delivery. So uh, there are some things available, not my first choices, but things are still available. We will still lock in. As long as my buyers lock in, I will lock in. So give us a call at 1-800-375-4188. You're talking about we have silver. The price has fallen below $14 an ounce today. All right, which is supposedly about $6 below average cost of production which is just insane, which explains why there's a delay on getting Silver Eagles, or at least it may explain, because the demand is so high. All right? Everybody wants them at this price, and yet the price is not significantly rising. Instead, the delivery date is being extended into the future. Mm-hmm. Well, to me, that's just evidence that the market is being manipulated. Mm-hmm. Where is supply and demand? If demand is at record levels, price should be rising. And yet it's not. See, price of silver fall below $14 an ounce. It's insane. It is. Yeah, it's just, it's insane. And yet there it is. It creates a great opportunity. There's no question there's a great buying opportunity, which is why people are piling in and say, gimme, gimme, gimme. Gimme, gimme, yeah, gimme. it makes absolute sense. They're practically giving the silver away. But result is you got a four-week delay. <laughs> I had a customer this morning. He was almost giddy. He was laughing. He says, I just love it. He says, I just love these products. Well, I know. He says, I, I can't, I'm getting it for nothing. Yes. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> you know, like I've said for I've said for some time, we've you know, all this means these lower prices, all it means they are annoying to me. I don't like them. All right? They offend me. They offend my sense of justice and reason. All right? But on the other hand, it just gives me an opportunity to buy that much more. All right? So on the one hand I'm saying, you know, is the glass half empty or is it half full? But I am buying. 
I'm getting as much as I can with what I have. Well, for the month, we have 4.1 million silver eagles uh, that were sold by the mint, and we still have basically another, what, three days uh, of sales that will be reported on Monday. So uh, it could very well push us back up. Uh, maybe over $5 million again this month. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, Silver Eagles aren't doing as strong as what uh, uh, they did last month, but we're still uh, close to 78,000 uh, Gold Eagles, American Gold Eagles. Um, so still a strong month for the year, though. And uh, it's actually the uh, third busiest month of American gold eagles for the year, so an active an active month in both gold and silver. Was this year? Was this month closed at all? Did mints close sales at all this month, or was it last month? I know they did in the last couple of months. I don't recall. It was last them. month. Last month, yeah. It was last month, and then the time before that was last year. Actually, they they closed the silver, and maybe that's what they're doing again this year. Last year, they closed the silver down like in November, middle of November, to prepare for the changeover from 2015 to 2016. So uh, maybe they're trying to uh, delay these. uh, Maybe that has something to do with since we're going into the last part of the year. Don't know. Um, Just a thought. But... We'll see how the rest of the year plays out, but folks, it it, it surprises me that silver rounds end of October. It's amazing. This is what happens. So if you're delaying, good luck. You know, and it's also evidence of oh, what a tangled web we weave when per- first we practice to deceive. The great and enormous deception is the idea. We are in a debt-based monetary system. Nobody denies that. Very few people understand what it means, but nobody denies it. Prior to that, we had been in an asset-based gold, uh, or an asset-based monetary system where our dollars were backed by assets like gold or silver. Now, we are in a monetary system where our alleged assets are backed by debt. Debt has become a form of wealth, which is just an incredible lie. All right? I understand that you can reason your way through it. I understand that if I have a a piece of paper that says someone owes me $1,000, I can treat that as a kind of wealth. If they're going to actually pay me $1,000, if they're going to pay me 1,000 silver eagles, for example, yeah, you know. But all they're going to give me, if I cash that check, all I'm going to get is another piece of paper where somebody else promises to pay, but they never do. We have an entire system that's based on the lie that debt can equate to wealth. It can be deceptive. It can create a deceptive appearance, but in the end, that's a fundamental lie. And when I talk about, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive... That's what we, once we started with that incredible but fundamental lie, we set this country off on a direction where we keep doing one stupid thing after another. One, and that's just stupid but self-destructive. And these acts flow from the fundamental idea that we can treat debt as if it were wealth. 
we can have a debt-based monetary system and everything will work out fine. No, it won't. Once you accept that fundamental premise, it pushes you, logic pushes you to conclusions that are contrary to common sense and maybe even contrary to survival. And how do we get back? You know, it's not going to be an easy thing. We have become so dependent on this incredible lie that we can't just say, well, we'll just cancel it today. You can't cancel that lie without canceling all kinds of programs and subsidies and welfare and uh, all sorts of institutions that are based on the lie. They have to go, too. And the resulting chaos is going to be enormous if we cancel that lie. On the other hand, if we keep telling the lie, the whole thing is going to blow up in our face anyway and self-destruct. And we are absolutely caught, you know, in one of those dilemmas of the sort you see in Greek mythology. I don't remember. There was a whirlpool on one side and maybe the sirens on the other side. I don't remember. But you have to sit between the two of these these dangerous and opposing forces and the chances of making the trip are just, you're going to succumb to one or the other. We're caught in the same thing. This thing is going to collapse because it's based on lies. It's not going to collapse because people aren't working hard enough or somebody made a political decision. We elected the wrong guy president. All those things can contribute to the collapse, but it's going to collapse because it's built on a lie. And sooner or later, the consequences, tell one lie, then you've got to tell another lie. Tell that one, now you've got to tell a second one, a third one, a fourth, a tenth, a hundredth. And you can't admit any of them are lies. You've got to run it through. You've got to stand up and look people in the eye and say, this is my fellow Americans. This is the truth. Because if you, if you admit what's really going on, you have to admit, oh, my God, this country is so screwed that anyone who really understands what's going on would be hunkering down. I mean, you'd have a a basement full of supplies waiting for what is inevitable, and it's not going to be fun for anyone. Even the people that are well-prepared, they're not going to have a good time. won't be fun. You know, they talk about happy campers. Oh, so-and-so's a happy camper. You may have all the supplies you need to go camping in the event of a forthcoming some sort of economic collapse. You may have all the supplies, but you're not you're still not gonna be a happy camper. Alright? You're gonna say, Damn, I hate living in this tent. Alright? But you're gonna be glad. You'll think you're lucky start if you have a tent and you have some food and you have the rest of it, but just the same. It's not going to be easy and it's not going to be fun. I've got an article here from Bloomberg. It's entitled The American System Isn't Rigged. All right. And it says, within the past year, the new catchphrase has come to dominate political discussion, certainly on the left. The system is rigged. All right, this is what we're talking about. Uh, the left is talking about the system is rigged. People like myself and Melody are talking about the markets are rigged. It's the same fundamental idea. This is not a level playing field. Senator Elizabeth Warren, she goes along with it, makes similar complaints. Senator Bernie Sanders agrees. Hillary Clinton agrees. And although these people are running on the left, their counterpart on the right are complaining that the markets are rigged. And the article goes on and said that we've had some remarkable 
legislation in the last years, the Affordable Care Act and Dodd-Street Reform uh, and Consumer Protection Law and Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and Credit Card Accountability, Responsibility and Disclosure Act. And he says these are evidence that Congress is willing to pass laws that are contrary to the best interests of special interests. And it's evidence that we aren't rigged. And what I'm saying, and they conclude, and they say the system is far from perfect, but it is anything but rigged. And I'm saying, no, then explain how comics can control the price of physical gold by selling 123 ounces of paper gold for every one ounce of physical gold actually sold and delivered. If the system isn't rigged, why have the prices of physical gold and silver continued to fall even though demand is rising to sometimes record highs? If the system isn't rigged, why is the Dow Jones shot almost straight up in the first few minutes of each of the past market days? Went up 400 points in five minutes today. If the system isn't rigged, why do we have a plunge protection team? Isn't the entity's protection against sudden market falls evidence of market manipulation? Doesn't that manipulation constitute market rigging? If the system isn't rigged, why do we have a non-constitutional fiat money system? Constitution says no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender and payment of debts. We're supposed to have gold and silver. We don't. How is that? How could that happen if the system wasn't rigged? If the system isn't rigged, why does the FDA license new drugs for big pharma that do nothing but suppress symptoms? At the same time, the FDA suppresses the sale of potential remedies that might be both effective and cheap. The markets are rigged, the system is rigged, and everybody knows it. Again, if the system's not rigged, why do the top 1% get, are they getting richer and richer while the middle class is disappearing? In fact, the rigging is so extensive that it can't be cured on, by unrigging it, even partially without causing the entire system to collapse. This is the idea that these lies are endemic. You can't, and you can't defeat one of the lies without knocking them all down. The great enemy, the existing system, is truth and public awareness of the truth. That's why Bloomberg wrote the article, uh, the previous propaganda, to discourage the public's perception that the markets and the system are rigged. They are recognizing that there is growing consensus. We, the people, understand that the markets, the system is rigged. We are increasingly aware of it. We know we're not getting a fair share, a shake. And Bloomberg is, oh, no, it's all okay. Bunk. That's propaganda and more and designed to support the lies. And the great thing about the article is that it implies that public awareness of the lies is growing. And as it does, the longevity of those lies is shortening. We're out of time. I want to thank all of you for listening. I'm Alfred Adasker with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival. I'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, the good Lord bless you, me, Melody, and Frank, the producer. Bye-bye.
Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.